What's up, my podcast listeners and all my YouTube subscribers watching this episode from your phone, laptop, TV, airplay, whatever you're doing. Um, this is a very, very special episode because this is my 400th episode on my podcast. Super, super huge milestone for me and you know I just feel at this moment where I still remember the very first episode I've ever created and funny enough I might have brought this up last time but I actually had someone add me on Facebook I messaged them and asked them you know what was like the most helpful episode and they said like my first five which is so cringeworthy and I still remember <laughs> going to record those episodes in my closet because I felt embarrassed that someone in my apartment building would hear me and like judge me <laughs> for some odd reason and then moving to interviewing other professionals in the industry and having so much anxiety and like doubt that I couldn't do this thing of a podcast and I should just quit to a point where I would almost get like sick about to interview these people. And honestly, I am so thankful that I just kept going because I've made so many great relationships interviewing all these uh, different fitness professionals and, you know, some I've met in person and they're as awesome as they were to interview them. Um, and then making the switch to just doing solo episodes was a huge one for me. Um, I don't know why, but my shirt keeps like rolling up on me. And which, by the way, total random thing. This is what I do all the time on my show. One of the first shirts that I made, and this is, I think this is the second edition. The first one was just like, just the word, cut the shit, get fit. And then I created this one and then kind of made better logos over the years, but, um, yeah, uh, I don't know why I brought that up. It's just my shirt was bugging me, but, um, making the switch to, um, solo episodes was huge because when I started interviewing people, I was like, oh, you know, I should, um, still do some solo episodes. And when I started telling people, like I do every single episode to, you know, add me on Facebook and add me on Instagram, because I, post a lot. Um, I always reach out to the people on my Facebook that add me and ask, you know, hey, did you add me because of my podcast? Um, if so, which episodes were the most helpful? And every single person would always say my solo episodes were the best. And I was like, I'm, I'm interviewing all these like amazing fitness coaches, doctors and things like that on my show. And people preferred my solo episodes and even then like seeing the stats of how many people listen compared to um like my solo episodes compared to the interviews my solo episodes were so much higher and I was like oh wow like I guess I know what I'm you know talking about I guess I should just do more and you know I made the tough decision it wasn't tough I just went down the direction of um doing more solo stuff and stopping 
interviewing the people that were reaching out to me because I got to that point people wanted to go on my podcast um, and I made the decision to slowly veer off the interviews and only interview people that were huge influences that's why um, you know my last couple episodes were people like Mike Boyle, Dr. John Berardi, um, Dr. Sue McGill like people like that just huge and you know now this past year doing a lot um, longer uh, podcasts that are solo, not just me driving in my car. Um, people have been really enjoying that. And even on my YouTube channel, I've been getting a lot more subscribers and views on that. So I'm like, that is freaking awesome. So I'm going to continue after this 400th episode, giving you more of these awesome uh, solo episodes, both audio and video. And, you know, I'm going to start upgrading my equipment a little bit more to make better looking content but again my style is very raw like if you've watched these videos it's one take I don't ever edit I don't like make it all typical YouTube videos that you see because I don't have the time to spend like two to three hours editing it like if I was getting paid for my podcast which I don't make any money off of my podcast that's the other thing um, a lot of podcasters will go down the route of getting advertisers on their show to make some income but I just don't feel like it's genuine to me like it doesn't feel like it's me because usually when I hear fitness podcasts with a you know person advertising it's like you know Dick's Lumbers giving you this episode blah blah and it's just it just it's weird you know um so yeah I don't make any money on this podcast I'm constantly just giving all the best info that I give and really it's like if you sat down with me and we brought up the topic like what was my last episode about foot intrinsics ankles and feet like that would be the conversation I would have with you right so I feel that if I continue doing this podcast this video uh, vlog it's going to always be free I'm never going to have advertisers so anytime I you know, bring something up that I'm going to sell. It's going to be something really, really big. So like the big thing that's going to be happening, hopefully by this summer is my next ebook, the ironclad body training system volume two. Um, as of right now, it is at 86,000 words and I'm no like nowhere near being done. Um, I think it's going to be around a hundred thousand words. It's going to be a long book. Um, and the one thing I wanted to do on this uh, episode is kind of share um, a little preview to it. So it follows the same thing of my last book, the same kind of outline, but just expanded so much. So say in my other book on mobility, right? It's like it was like a sliver of what I have in this book right now because I'm in the process of editing it. So I'm reading through everything I wrote and as it's so funny as I'm reading through I'm like oh I should also add this oh I'm gonna write a little bit more on that specific topic so I go in so in depth though so for example the warm-up section in my first book man you should see how much um, detail I've written to kind of really understand the importance of the warm-up how to create a warm-up and like everything about it is just freaking awesome. I'm so excited um, to 
bring that into the world of the internet of the fitness industry in uh, summer hopefully I don't have a date yet it kind of depends on how my editing goes but the other amazing and exciting thing um, and I got this idea like probably right when uh, COVID started um, in my mobility section for the workouts is not going to be just videos that you follow along um, to demo what the exercise is so I'm adding um, kin stretch workouts for the mobility um, section of the book where it's a full-on recorded kin stretch session with me so literally you can just press play and follow along and realize how much you need kin stretch and how terrible your mobility is but that is one of the most exciting things about the book that's going to be coming out and for those who did not purchase two years ago when I released my first book uh, the ironclad body training system is essentially a program for those people who have aches and pains or have had a previous injury or really messed up their knee and never took care of it and they want to train but every time they get into a routine the knee flares up the shoulder flares up their elbow flares up so I work with people like that every single day in person and I've created a system of like pain-free uh, training and it all starts with an assessment. So the moment you get my book, one of the first things you do is a movement assessment, which then dictates which version of the program you do. So an example of that is a lot of people can't overhead press because they just don't have the mobility requirements or the stability requirements in order for this shoulder joint to go above the head and then also press a weight over it. So... When people don't know this, they end up going to the gym and messing up their shit. And now it's like, oh, the front of my shoulder is always sore and I can like barely do this. So if you knew that, then you would be able to train for a lot longer before something flares up. So that's why I feel my book kind of is the right fit for many, many people, especially now where a lot of us are working from home and we're sitting a lot and <laughs> we fucking need a little bit more of a specific program rather than a cookie cutter one that we got uh, online or a program you've done back in college where your body's not the same. So super exciting stuff for my upcoming book release. And the reason why I'm talking about this is from earlier saying that I don't make any money off my podcast or any of my social stuff because I want to keep it free. I'm not going to have advertisers at all the only thing i do ask is when i do come out with something like my book support me right um i will have discounts for my listeners um when it does come out but that's literally the only thing i ask i kind of go with the model of precision nutrition where they provide free content all year and they have one product of you know nutrition coaching that comes out once or twice a year can't remember but uh yeah so look out for um my new book in the summer um it's gonna literally blow the socks off of a lot of people it's, i honestly feel it's like the best thing i've ever created and i'm so excited to share it um the other thing i will be creating um new shirts uh, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently where people don't have to place an order and I'll personally ship them out. Um, the website I used to use, not too happy with it. Um, so I'm going to have some new designs and logos and things like of that nature. So 
I can't wait for that. And there's also some new projects that I'm working on right now that I'm need to keep under wraps. And you know, when the time comes, I'll make the announcement, but those things are really, really, really exciting. So 2021 is gonna be quite the year for me, both personally and professionally. Um, so episode 400, um, how this is gonna work. Right now I'm doing the little intro to the whole thing. After this is gonna be the interview I did with Krista Scott Dixon, um, probably now a month ago. Um, the reason why I chose her for um, my 400th episode is because she is such a, one, a big name in the industry, but two, like a nutritional fitness ninja. That's what I call her. Like if you talk to her about fitness, health, nutrition, or just life, it just seems like she's just got it figured out. And every time I listen to her, I just like learn something new. And she was one of the first people that I reached out to, to get onto my podcast right when I like first started. Like she did not know who I was. I just cold emailed, I think, or messaged her on Facebook. And she was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And she was so good right before uh, the recording started because I told her, I'm like, I am dead, like, scared to interview you. You're such a big name. And she just made me feel so comfortable. She was like, don't worry if you screw up, edit it out. Like, we can always do whatever is needed. So I felt super, super, you know, thankful for her to be that easy because I've had people on my show where... Uh, it was definitely tough, like definitely did not, they didn't have a lot of empathy. So um, she was just a, a perfect fit for my 400th episode. Um, I believe she was also my 300th episode as well. And it was kind of around the same time, but um, we did a little bit earlier in the year. But anyway, um, she is honestly the perfect person for this. So after this little intro, we're going to go to that um, episode and literally with her I did not like plan questions or anything like that in my head because she's so good at, at speaking we kind of just went with the flow and that's how my show's always been just go with the flow and we talk about some really 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 deep things and obviously talked about COVID so it's going to be a great episode so if you are watching right now the next portion where we actually bring Krista on you'll see the video um interview because I recorded on zoom um if you guys are listening it's just gonna go to that interview um people watching and also listening there's a section of that where my internet kind of crapped out so you're gonna have like 30 seconds of like can you hear me can you hear me Krista is that can you hear me oh, okay good and then we like go back into the interview um and then I am super, super, super excited. The last portion of this um, interview for my 400th episode, I am adding um, my audio version of my ebook. So I'll also have this for my new one, but the one added benefit to my Ironclad Body Training System ebook um i added an audio version where i literally sat down with my book and read it to you story style and 
added some you know tangents because i would read a section and go you know what there's this time where i did blah, blah blah so i'm actually really really excited to release this for the first time for free because people had to purchase my book before and you know have access to listening to it and then doing the program um so i'm going to add this to the very end of the episode and um yeah it's gonna it's gonna be a ride so this episode's gonna be quite lengthy but definitely worth it i had to make it make it special because fuck 400 episode that's a lot of content and for those who've gone through all 400 episodes like nice work that's a lot of information but you know what something i really really enjoy you know here's to my 1000th episode i don't even know how long that would take to get there but like i'm gonna keep this thing going as long as i can before i have to retire the you know podcast game but fuck it i just want to keep giving and giving and giving and giving and giving as much as possible so thank you guys for supporting me for now 400 episodes thank you for all my new listeners who just found me Thank you for the listeners that started two years ago and just went through everything. And thank you again for all the people who started with me with day one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I feel so humbled to have so many listeners around the entire world. Like, that's why I always like to do the shout outs. And, like, in my typical fashion, I was not prepared to tell you what my top three cities were. Um, but I do remember. It is a city out in Finland. I've never had Finland on my top three. Can't remember the city. I'm sorry. It was one of those ones where I don't know how to pronounce, so I was no way to remember that. But Finland is my new number one uh, for the last two weeks. So shout out to everyone in Finland listening to my show. But yes, so many international listeners. It is amazing to see people all over the world, not only in Canada and the United States, but seeing international listeners so freaking cool and then getting them on my facebook and instagram and some of them don't even speak english but they listen to my show which is super cool um thank you thank you thank you for all the support you guys are amazing um have an amazing day thank you thank you till next time all right we are recording um so since I've had you on my show so many freaking times, I don't even think I need to do a intro because you're like a celebrity, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know who I am, you should. Yeah, I find that such a weird thing, though. It's like it's a celebrity only to like a very uh, tiny niche of people, right? It's like yeah. it's like being the quilting champion or something like that or the popcorn <laughs> eating champion, you know, like maybe 500 people are like, yeah. And then everyone's yeah. like, who is that? Yeah. But it's funny though, like even um, when I say that and I have like my clients or the people that follow me for so many years and I like posted your photo a couple of days ago and a bunch of people like emailed me or like messaged me on Instagram. They're like, who is this? I'm like, you should definitely listen. And like I've had this happen like a couple of times before when I've had you on my show and every person like replied back. They're like, shit, you were right. She's really good. And now like they've been following you forever. <laughs> but um yeah, um, I guess it kind of started, it'd be kind of good to kind of see what you've been up to, because I think that's what we did last time, and, you know, you're always working on something, so I'm kind of excited to hear what you've got down the pipeline. 
Well, I mean, if possible, I'd like to pause and kind of make this a mutual celebration because, I mean, congratulations on your accomplishment of getting to this number of podcasts. Like, that's <laughs> tremendous. Like, really, what an incredible accomplishment. So, so kudos to you. And it kind of feels like we've evolved together uh, yeah. in, in a way. So, yeah. So what's up with me lately? Well, I mean, um, you know, for those of folks who've been following Precision Nutrition, I mean, we are in this massive expansion phase of building all kinds of new courses, uh, new curriculum, and really just responding to a lot of the stuff that our coaches were looking for, right? So a lot of coaches will do our level one certification, our level two certification, but then a lot of the times they're, they really feel like, okay, that was a good foundation, but I need more specialist understanding in a particular area of interest. So for example, um, oh, I'm coaching high performance athletes. Like I really feel like I need a deep dive into that. Or uh, I really want to go further into change psychology. Uh, can I learn more about that? Or you guys alluded to uh, metabolic health. Where can I learn more about that? So, uh, you know, or, or I'm setting up my business uh, using ProCoach, the software, like, or even just one-on-one, -on -one, like, how do I do that? So really it's like, as people ask us questions and we identify needs and gaps that need to be filled, we're like, oh, let's build a course. So we've gone from just me, I was telling you before we got on, we've gone from just me basically as building curriculum to having several teams of people now um, that I'm working with. And we've brought on like so many incredible, knowledgeable people. And it's funny, I mean, in a weird way, the pandemic was a great opportunity because a lot of academics, especially freshly minted PhDs and postdocs were like, well, my lab is closed uh, during this pandemic, so I don't really know what to do with myself. And I was like, hey, great, come work for us. So for us, it was actually a really great opportunity to bring on some, some new people and some really talented people who, you know, in normal times would have been going on to being academic superstars, but we poached them first. So yay us. <laughs> nice. And it's interesting with like this whole COVID thing because like there is a lot of like negative stuff out there, but there's also like a lot of positive stuff where people like saw this as an opportunity. And like, I love seeing that, like people just getting creative because they're like forced into this little corner and they're like, okay, it's do or die. What do I do with my business? What do I do with my personal life and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly illustrates the deep change that can happen from a dramatic shift in your environment, right? And, and it also illustrates that division between motivation and willpower and environmental change. And yeah, we can change with motivation, we can change with willpower, but changing your environment is just so much more powerful. And I mean, and you, you have to change, like you kind of get dragged along kicking and screaming in a way. Nobody was motivated to make pandemic related changes, I think. Although, I mean, some people did say, hey, you know what, like, I've been thinking about doing such and such. I've been thinking about online offerings as a coach for a long, long time. And I never had the courage to do it. And this was the push I needed. So, you know, in some cases, yeah, it was a good fit for people. In other ways, I think they did not want the change, but they had to adapt to it. But certainly, I mean, it's, it's demonstrable that environmental changes are so much more of a driver of, of personal and professional change than just wanting to change. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious too, like with COVID, like how did you deal with it? Like both, both personally and also like on a fitness level. Cause like for me, you know, it kind of turned the entire world upside down for like, Oh, 2020 is going to be the year where I get super shredded. And that didn't really happen for probably a lot of people. So I'm kind of curious, like both personally and also on the fitness side of things, how did COVID influence? 
Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, there was kind of like a trajectory of it, right? Like March, April, like what happened in different times. And I, I can certainly remember in, in March when it all went down. I mean, there wasn't a huge change in my work life because I've, I'd already worked at home virtually for a number of years. But in terms of like the level of fear and uncertainty and anxiety, I remember this one moment of early on going to the grocery store. Of course, nobody was wearing masks. This would have been in March. And people were standing too close to me and I was starting to freak out. And like, it just felt like literally every molecule in the air could potentially kill me. We didn't know how lethal this thing was. So I remember coming home from the grocery store and like seeing empty shelves. And I remember coming home and just crying. Like I did not know how to process what was happening. Um, and that's really since evolved. Uh, for me uh, personally, um, it's been a tremendous opportunity to practice resilience, which is a skill area that I don't think I was as adept in, to practice creative problem solving, to practice working under constraints. Um, and the huge bonus for me, in a weird way, has been, you know, I haven't been to a gym since the spring and I've been forced to go outside. Now, I'm lucky because I live in Vancouver and the climate is very forgiving. So, you know, I'm going to go for a run today because it's eight degrees Celsius. Like, you know, there's, there's a real bonus there, but it's forced me outside. So I got a bike, I took up cycling. I started hiking with like hiking became my social time. I started working out. I, I thank heavens had, a, you know, had some kettlebells at a TRX lying around because I don't even know how, if I would have, you know, been able to buy it for less than a thousand dollars on the black market by now. Yeah. But you know, I had a TRX, I had bands. And so I, I'd go out to the local trees in the local park and do my TRX. And I discovered that working out outside was incredibly good for my mental health. Even if I just took a kettlebell into the, the back alley. So for me, actually, like the, the pandemic was a real chance to say, how can I get off the script completely? Like, I felt like the pandemic, I don't know if folks are listening and you're a little bit of like a rule follower, you know, you're someone who wants to do the right thing and you like to, I don't love to follow rules, but I do try and do the right thing. And I'm always wondering, like, should I be doing something different or better? And I think the pandemic took away a lot of our shoulds. It was like, listen, man, there's no script for living a good life or making good choices. So you're on your own. And I think that's horrifying, but also incredibly liberating because you're like, oh, it's all like, I guess I felt the most deeply that I ever have in my life that this is all on me to figure out. And again, terrifying, but also incredibly liberating and empowering if you seize onto that and, and really wrestle with it. So yeah, so I mean, I'd always loved cycling, but like I've, I, I took up running. That was never a thing for me. Um, and now it is. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, I did a post a couple days ago for this year, what kind of COVID kind of opened up. Like a lot of people are trying to discredit like 2020, that it was a shit year. Like 2021 is going to be better. Like I can't I wait for this year to be done. And I was like, honestly, this was the year that like showcased and woke you up to yes. tell you what's really important right and like and I remember vividly like on New Year's Eve my um, wife's side of the family we did a zoom call for the countdown and everything and like after the countdown finished my sister-in-law like just started crying and we were like oh what's going on and she's like she's like I don't know I just feel like I I want everyone to be together this is not the same and I just told her, I'm like, this is literally showcasing how important family is. And we took it for granted before. Because like, I don't know, for me, like previous years going to a family dinner, everyone's like, all right, so we're done eating. Let's now go home. It's already 830. Like no one really wants to stick around. Yeah. And then on my side of the family, when we had um, Christmas dinner over Zoom, 
it lasted until like 2.30 in the morning. And we were all like, wow, this is the first time this has ever happened. So it's like, yeah. all right, family's pretty important. We need to like double down on that when we can see each other again. Yeah, I think you're saying something so important because I, like people often look at their problems or their challenges and say, oh, this reflects something really bad and painful and something I don't want to address. But there's almost always a flip side where it's like, the fact that you're distressed about this probably means that there's some value that you hold that is really good. Like, so, you know, me being frustrated and, and depressed because I was trapped. Well, that probably means I'm someone who enjoys freedom and, you know, autonomy. So it was really a worthwhile exercise to say, yeah, like, gosh, it's amazing what I didn't realize I was given uh, as entitlements and privileges, even stuff like having a functioning social public uh, commercial infrastructure. Like I can go to the store and get toilet paper. I never thought about that being a thing before, but it's, you know, in other countries, lineups at grocery stores and, and food shortages and shortages of commodities are very common. Um, so like, you know, it really, uh, I think ideally develops a sense of appreciation, especially if you can look at particular events and say, oh, that really illuminated for me the value of, like in your case, family. I didn't realize that was a thing before. And, you know, I mean, in, in a broader sense, I also think that 2020 ripped the lid off a lot of, you know, a can of truth, if I can say it that way. And I think that there were kind of like comfortable fictions that a lot of us participated in that we really can't participate any anymore, or you know, you'd have to have a sociopathic level of like self-delusion to to keep believing in it, right? And so, you know, the thing that comes to my mind is um, essential workers and like disparities in healthcare access. Like, it is now glaringly obvious that social inequality and income equality and you know lack of access to healthcare services is a huge problem, or like lack of funding to public health, you know, is a huge problem and it forces us to look at these things in a way that has, has not been so stark in living memory. So I think that was super valuable. And it's interesting. I mean, we're recording this the day after, you know, a mob of, <laughs> of, of, of rioters like stormed Seriously. the U.S. Capitol, right? And, and, you know, some people are like, oh, this is shocking. And it's like, no, it's not. Like in lots of ways, you can easily trace the threads of and the roots of this, right? But I just, I think it's been laid bare and made explicit to us in ways that um, are a little bit new, again, in recent memory. Yeah, it's definitely a crazy time. And like, at this point in my, like how 2020 went and how like this next year is going to come, nothing shocks me anymore i yeah. just like i'm like yeah that makes sense yeah you know like aliens are gonna attack us probably next who knows right? yeah well it was funny there was there was one guy they interviewed at the at the riot yesterday who said something i would actually agree with which is he was like yeah you know 2020 was a weird year but i think 2021 is gonna be like hold my beer i was like yeah, yeah. that guy's probably right <laughs> seriously seriously um another thing i was kind of like curious too like with people within precision nutrition that are still continuing with like their nutrition coaching and things like that like I'm kind of curious like what problems kind of popped up from a coaching perspective when people are still trying to like maintain their fitness and you know hope to lose whatever pounds that they were looking for yeah um I I think I think what happened for a lot of people is you know to kind of reference what I was saying earlier I think the facade got ripped away for a lot of people. Like a lot of people started questioning, like, why am I even doing this? 
what is the what is the point of having abs when society is burning right yeah. or or they or they re, re started to think differently about their fitness goals um so it started to become more about being healthy right and like a lot of my clients were very concerned about immunity how can i improve my immunity oh geez maybe this is the kick in the pants that i need to sleep more right so i think people either started to feel like a lot of the superficial stuff was meaningless um, and so they had to find different motivations, um, or they found new, more meaningful motivations for changing their habits, or they were forced to grapple with uh, some of the underlying issues that had been driving their fitness and health behaviors, right? So for example, um, a lack of self-care, lack of self-advocacy, um, untreated or under-recognized mental health issues, relationship issues. Like I think with that veneer pulled away, people were kind of forced to stop like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic and say, you know what, there's probably some deeper stuff driving my desire for change. And maybe I should look at that. So, you know, I think in the short term, a lot of people really plunged into some deep, dark mental and emotional places. Um, but again, I think it was the real impetus to say, you know what, maybe I do need help with this. And maybe this deeper thing is what's driving um, you know, my desire to have abs or to fix my life or whatever. Like I've kind of come to terms with the fact that a new diet is not going to solve this underlying problem that I'm experiencing. Um, and I think a lot of people like me discovered new activities, you know, because they were constrained in the ones that they had previously habitually been uh, doing. Like a lot of people took up new things, especially like a lot of outside things um, or, or things like gardening um, so yeah, I think it was, it was different for different people, but that was, that was the themes that I saw. And then I think another piece of it was like, people started doing the day drinking and snacking thing in March and, and, and that didn't really resolve itself for them. Like December, by December, they're like, uh, you know what, maybe this is now something I should think about. So I think for a lot of people, that was a, a, a bit of a challenge too. Yeah. Like even for me personally, like in 2020, I drank a lot of beer. Cause it just, one, I love beer, like craft beer is like my thing, but then like working from home and you're like, the fridge is right there. Like, it's so easy. Yeah. It's, it's 12 o'clock and no one's going to know. Right? Right. Like, it's legit. It's legit. Well, I mean, and, and I think like for me, like March, April, there was like this atmosphere of kind of like, yay, it's a sleepover camp. Right. And so like, there was a sense of like, anything goes, ha ha, shot of tequila before a meeting. And I think like collectively as a society, we're all kind of participating in that. And I certainly felt it. So there were, there was a period of like a several weeks where it did feel like there were no rules and all of us collectively were like participating in that. Right. So yeah, I was the same. I was like, Hey man, why not a cocktail at 3 PM? It's a pandemic. And <laughs> thankfully I've, I've gotten off that habit, but uh, there was a, like, cause I never really used to drink like at all. Like I'd go six months without having a drink. And then all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? A morning cocktail sounds perfect. So, but I, I you know, on the plus side, I think it gave people opportunities to explore different ways of living and to kind of come to a different place with it. So instead of saying, oh, I'm going to stop snacking because snacking is bad and I'm a bad person for doing it. They came to a different place with it where they were like, you know what? I don't want to keep snacking because I don't feel good in my body anymore. So they arrived at like wanting to change the situation from a different motivation. And, a, and again, I think a deeper, more meaningful 
motivation. So I just decided like at one point, you know what, I don't really want to buzz while I'm trying to do something useful. <laughs> it's not helping me. It's not, I'm not like some famous, you know, novelist from the twenties where it's like, this is making me write better poetry. No, it didn't work that way. <laughs> That's awesome. Just got dehydrated. Um, yeah, seriously. Yeah. I was just like thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm pretty sure 2020 was like the highest like record sales in alcohol, at least. In oh, life. I'm sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> and cannabis shops in Canada, at least we're doing record business. Oh, for sure. Like anytime I went to the liquor store, I was like, wow, there's still a lineup and it's like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if people are hoarding or I don't know what they were doing. I actually saw an ad recently that was something like, uh, let us help you get through your family Zoom call. It was like an ad for a cannabis shop. <laughs> I was like, I like that. That's keeping it real right there. That's awesome. There you go. <laughs> um, so kind of the next thing too is like knowing that 2020 was pretty rough for a lot of people and they probably fell into like some mental health issues. They might like resort to food or alcohol. And now that, you know, 2021 is here and they're trying to like get out of those bad habits. But I almost seem like it might be even more difficult now because it's so deep rooted into some dark mental health stuff. So what are some strategies for someone to kind of, you know, turn a new leaf and kind of get into the right direction? Yeah. And I'm going to say something here that I don't know, maybe contrary to how some mental health professionals might look at it, but from my personal experience, having experienced bouts of depression, um, I, I think that going to a dark place at certain times in your life has a kind of usefulness to it. And, you know, if you're listening, you're like, no, what is the point of suffering? It sucks and it feels bad. And I like, yes, I, absolutely. It does suck. And absolutely. It feels bad. There's no argument there. But I think that most of us tend to walk around with a preference of like, you know what, I'd really rather not look at parts of myself that feel anything less than perfect. And I think there are times in our life when we are forced to reckon with that. We are forced to come to terms with it and to say, you know what, this is bigger than me. Um, you know, not to harp on the scene, but I, I think there's a huge opportunity there to say, rather than panicking and flailing and saying, oh my God, I wish this thing wasn't here. It's freaking me out. I, this is terrible. I have to get rid of it right away. To kind of turn towards it and soften towards it a little bit and say, okay, like what what is this telling me? Like, what is this? What am I learning about myself in this experience? What is this telling me? How can I care for myself in this moment? How can I be curious about what this is like for me? Um, you know, and then of course, how can I get support with this? And so I think like, if I'm, if I'm going to be giving advice about this, I would say the first piece of advice is don't try to come out of this alone. I mean, if you can, great. Like if you wake up tomorrow and you feel fine, awesome. Good for you. Get on with your day. But I, I think for a lot of people, this is revealed, like it certainly happened for a lot of my clients. Eventually, most of them were like, you know what? I think I might need to get some additional support around this. And I was like, yes, awesome. So, you know, if you feel like that, that's you, whether it's anxiety, it's depression, it's, um, and depression, I think is an interesting thing because I always imagined that it would look like, oh, I spend all day in bed crying and feeling sad. But for a lot of people, it's much more just like a blah like a lack of vitality and, and just not giving a shit. It's, and there's a lot of burnout too. Like if you're a helping professional, if you're a teacher, if you're a first responder, if you're a healthcare professional, oh my God, like how burned out are you right now, right? So like these are things that, that you really, really do need help with and they can look all kinds of ways. So, you know, really investigate, like how is this 
um, playing out in my life? How is it manifesting? How's it affecting my sleeping? How's it affecting my eating, my relationships, my daily life function, my energy level, my desire to do things, my sense of joy and zest and vitality? You know, kind of do a little investigation of that, um, but really do investigate the support resources that are available to you because it's tremendously difficult to dig yourself out of a hole when you're in it without help. I mean, it's so ironic, like with depression, we know that exercise helps. We know that eating better helps. But when you're in it, like it's, you know, it's this horrible irony of depression. It's like, I need to do these things that I'm like precisely the least motivated to do right now. So in that moment, you really do need a scaffold. Like you almost need a friend to come and haul you out and say, okay, <laughs> like we're getting outside and getting some sun on your eyeballs right now. Um, so, so yeah, but I, I think, you know, I would say really throw out that idea of like, I'm just going to magically turn over a new leaf in 2021 because I want to doesn't work that way. I <laughs> like it really, it really doesn't. You, you need a systematic ongoing program of support, and care and compassion and um, skills as well. Uh, you know, we, we try, we, I think we think about mental health as like either you have it or you don't, but it's like health in a way because health is built out of skills. If I have the skill to, you know, do movement every day and I have the skill to shop and prep for healthy foods and eat those consistently. And if I have the skill to go to bed on time, you know, so mental health is a series of skills and behaviors too. And there are behaviors that you can do that will augment your mental health almost immediately. Um, we can talk about that if you want, but so don't feel like, oh, this is something about me as a person. It's like, no, you probably need some skills and behaviors and different routines to actually make this work. Yeah. And I want to kind of touch on like the first bit you were talking about, like how going into like those dark places is not a bad thing necessarily like even for me where I've gone through bouts of depression and there was like a pattern of like realizing what I really wanted in my mm. next like phase of my life and it's always been like those moments where like exactly what you said you're like just blah unmotivated to do anything things don't really like matter you're like fuck this fuck that I don't really care but then you like start staying with your thoughts and then you're like realizing I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do this instead. That's going to make me happy. And then like, for me, when I get to that point, I'm like, now I'm getting a little bit more motivated to like start changing things. I don't know if that's just me or if that's like, for most people, I have no clue, but I don't know. That's what I've experienced. Yeah. And I was given a metaphor once by a really wise therapist, which was, um, you can think of a lot of this, like, you know, when you have tide pools, like there are these wells on the shore, right? And when then the ocean goes out, you see what's left behind in the, the tide pools, right? Little clams and fish and, you know, starfish and whatever. So there's stuff that has always been there, but you didn't see it until the, the tide went out. And I've always thought that was a really good metaphor. And so instead of thinking about depression as like something that says something about you as a person, um, what it actually says is it's more like a, a dashboard indicator light. It's like something that says, hey, pay attention. And anxiety is the same way. So we often rush to try to fix the depression rather than, as, as you say, like investigating it, like, okay, what is this trying to express to me? Um, you know, like, what is it trying to say to me? Because I mean, you can have depression that has a physiological cause, right? Particular medications or whatever. Um, but a lot of the time, there's some kind of complex biological, emotional, cognitive, relationship, life, environmental stuff going on that is almost like in a way necessary 
to transition you to a different phase or, or it's letting you know about something really important that you need to intend, attend to. And there's this, I mean, a lot of cultures have this kind of like descent to the underworld archetype. Um, and, and the Mesopotamians did it like in this really gnarly graphic way where, um, you know, what, this goddess descends to the underworld and is like progressively stripped of everything that she has, her, her robes, her finery, her jewels. And eventually at the end, even her skin is stripped off and she's hung on a meat hook. I mean, it's so gruesome. That's how they rolled in the Babylonian times. Um, but like, I've always found that such a profound analogy because it's a process of stripping down and stripping away. And you know, to circle back to 2020, what was the greatest gift of it? It cut the shit. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? Cut the shit. It cut a lot of shit. And depression and anxiety too have the power to help you cut the shit in your life if you um, are willing, <laughs> maybe not ready, maybe not able, but certainly willing to uh, attend to it. And I mean, Carl Jung always said, the, the only way out is through. So it doesn't help you to pretend that this isn't happening. Um, some part of you in some way has to turn towards this and say, okay, what, what are you trying to let me know about? You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I think like our bodies are so well designed to do stuff like this. Like, I, I don't know if I can prove it or not, but like, honestly, like, I feel like when your life has been so freaking crazy, your body will be like, you know what? That's enough. I'm going to shut it down. Yeah. Boom. We're going to put you into like a, depressive state now mull that over figure your shit out before we can go back <laughs> yeah actually that's a really good analogy and I, and I think that I'm glad you brought that in right so there is that kind of parasympathetic response where um, I don't know if folks have ever you know had this experience where they finished some crazy busy time at work or life or had some big event or whatever and then they crash yeah. and, and they feel immobilized and they sleep and and I mean, the parasympathetic system is that kind of shutdown system. That, like, it's like, right? like it dials down the engines and it's like, okay, you're too dumb. You know, in your conscious brain, you're, you're being too much of a dummy to stop when you should. So I'm going to stop it for you. Like you clearly can't be trusted to run your life right now. So I'm going to power down for you um, and help you heal and help you kind of um, reconstitute. I think of it as almost like a period of incubation, right? It's like, you know, when the winter comes and there's like this decay, right? Uh, the leaves, the, the, the beauty of the changing leaves is done. And now we're left with like melting dog shit and decaying leaves. Like that period is necessary um, to kind of grow something new in the spring, but you have to be willing to go into it. Yeah. And it's funny that you brought that up because like literally when I took time off during the holidays, it was like December 18th, but that week leading up to that Friday was like stressed through the roof at work. And then like Friday, like ended early. I came home, like, I'm so excited to be on holidays. Like I'm going to sleep early, wake up late. And like that night I went to bed at like 930. I'm like, I'm so exhausted. I'm going to go to sleep. I like fell asleep really, really hard. And then like middle of the night, like got up, couldn't breathe had a panic attack, anxiety attack. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I'm like, it's probably because I had a really stressful week. And like, my body's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our bodies speak to us. And I think, you know, so much of our, our time and effort and attention in North America is spent trying to fix that, right? It's like, yeah. my body's talking to me, but I don't want to hear what it has to say. So I'm going to like, just anesthetize. I'm going to just shut it up. It's like, I don't know if people can relate to this. I'm, I'm a woman of a certain age now. And so like, sometimes parts of me crunch 
when I work out. So it's like, you know what, I'm just going to turn the music up <laughs> so I don't have to hear my knees crunching. <laughs> you know, and I think that's a perfectly fine strategy. But like, I mean, I think that that defines so much of what we do. It's like, oh, like there are these, uh, this, there's this unattended pain that I'm experiencing. You know what, I'm just going to go and slather a nice icing layer of shopping on top of yeah. that, right? Yeah, and like, what's interesting too is like how people deal with it on if they don't want to deal with it like yeah like you said putting you know that icing of music or whatever shopping whatever it is to distract them for a little bit but in the end it's going to pop up more and more and more and more so you might yeah. as well just deal with it like come on now <laughs> yeah it's like whack-a-mole or um another good analogy is like steam you know steam is going to find a way to escape either either it's going to find a little vent or it's going to eventually explode something yeah. So um, it's always going to find a way out. It doesn't go away just because you don't look at it. Yeah. I'm glad that like we're talking about this because like I always on my podcast when I do like my solo episodes and I talk about like weight loss, fat loss, whatever it is, this is the stuff that's more important than like, so like how many grams of sugar should I be eating? And it's like, yeah. well, there's, there's like some other shit that you should probably take care of. Cause like when you think of like bigger picture stuff, like all the stuff that we just talked about is going to influence all your stuff that you do with your nutrition so when I get questions like that, I'm like, okay, we need to look at the deeper picture here. What's going on with you? Yeah, almost always. I mean, there is maybe 1% of the population that can approach this in an absolutely robotic, emotionally neutral way, right? And those are typically people that become professional bodybuilders, you know, and, and deeply enjoy like the almost mathematical process of kind of like fiddling the knobs and the dials. Yeah. But for the other 99% of us, like that's not, that's not the solution. That's not what we're about. And I actually feel like as much as I think that bodybuilding is a cool and interesting body modification subculture, I do feel like the ways of thinking about things have come to define health and fitness in lots of ways. And so people are thinking like 99% of people should not be asking me about grams. Like grams have no bearing on anyone who isn't getting paid to have a certain body composition. Um, but yet that's come to sort of define the language and the conceptual framework that we use. Uh, in reality, you know, what's true for most people is this is about your life. It's about how you wanna live. It's about who you wanna be. It's about the choices that you make. It's about how you feel and what you think and what you believe and what you value. So like grams of whatever is such an unbelievably irrelevant question. And I think, you know, there's, logistical tactical things we can talk about how do you shop um how do you make a nice salad how do you cook a chicken right like there's things like that how do you uh prep a meal that your whole family will enjoy like absolutely those are problems we need to solve but the relative importance of them is so much lower compared to these other larger questions that you're talking about yeah so if you had to like give like some realistic goals for 2021 when it comes to nutrition for the 99% of people out there, what would be kind of like the first couple of things to kind of look at and kind of master? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say the first one is take the opportunity to almost literally pull out a blank sheet of paper and say like 2020 burned down everything that I think I know and everything that, you know, the script and how I think things should be. What do I know to be true? in 2021 about myself, about my life, about my needs, about my body, you know, like just forget everything that happened up to like 30 seconds ago. Um, what do I know to be true 
right now? Because I mean, very likely the person that you are listening to this right now is not the person you were a year ago or six months ago. So like to even attempt to apply that previous model to yourself, it's not going to work because you're not that person anymore. So like, it's, it's, it's like trying to use an old plane ticket to go somewhere else that, that's already expired, right? It's not going to work. So, I mean, that's step number one, like get an absolutely realistic assessment of who you are and what you're doing right now. And that can be things like, what is my work situation right now? What is my family home situation right now? Am I homeschooling? Uh, you know, like what's my daily routine? How much time am I spending on things? What's my energy level? What's my level of distraction and focus? Um, what health and fitness things can I actually access? Like, am I in lockdown? Are there grocery stores easily available? Are there gyms? Like, can I get outside? So really just kind of do like a full state of the union, so to speak, accounting of like, what absolutely painfully realistic, what is true for me right now? And don't, don't flinch. I mean, if you're still in that group that's day drinking, you know, write that down. <laughs> um, and then I think the second thing is to look at that and say, okay, what is the tiniest intervention I could make here that would at least move the needle just a little bit? Like, this is no time for transformation. Like, this is really just throw that idea. Out. Don't be like 2021 best year ever. Fuck that shit. It's dead to you. Just, just let it die. Um, look for the absolute tiniest intervention and i'll you can't because this is going to be audio you can't see it but i'm going to show you i got a little notebook and it's very there's very tiny entries for every day and that's what i write down what i'm going to do today because one of my big challenges has been using time effectively so if i only have a tiny little block of a notebook that i can write things down on that forces me to prioritize to think clearly okay what actually matters what can i realistically get done in a day but that tiny intervention is write down what you're going to do today with a schedule, like 9 a.m. do this, 3 p.m. do this, um, in a tiny notebook. Like that is, that takes me 30 seconds and that is my intervention that makes other things possible. So those are the two. So, so one of them is kind of like, the first one is kind of a big job. And then the second one that comes out of that is like, what is the absolute tiniest next action that you can do? Love it. And I like the first point that you brought up of like just writing out realistic expectations of who you are. Because I find a lot of people fall into that trap of like, okay, new year, I need to like get fit, whatever it is. And they automatically think about what they've done in the past that worked. And mm -hmm. it's like so unrealistic that, you know, 10 years ago, oh, I used to go to the gym every single day. I used to run five days a week or whatever it was. I'm going to start doing that again. But it's like, since then, you've had a couple more kids you yeah. change jobs, you moved from this place to that place, you don't like whatever it is anymore. And it's like, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> well, yeah. And we were actually just talking about this yesterday when we were talking about um, how, how trainers and coaches in the business calculate hourly rates. And I think one of the big mistakes people make in, in calculating hourly rates is they just look at the hours that they're actively coaching. So if I have a call with someone for half an hour, I just charge for that half an hour call. But in fact, there's prep, there's follow-up, there's note-taking, there's thinking about it. Like there's all kinds of other things that take your time. And then if you are homeschooling or juggling childcare or, you know, trying to work remotely, if that's not something that you're used to, suddenly that half an hour is not just a half an hour. It could be five hours. It could be a huge mental time suck in lots of ways. And so there's an analogy there with, with you know, health, fitness, exercise, whatever, which is don't just look at the most obvious things. 
consider all of the factors that you are dealing with in a realistic way. So realistically, how much energy do you have? Realistically, what is your schedule like? Are, you know, is, is an eight hour workday really seven and a half hours of wrangling your kids for homeschooling? <laughs> Write that down. Uh, don't, don't pretend that you're something other than you're not. And to go back to your earlier point, I think a lot of people imagine that all of a sudden, they're going to display a level of motivation and discipline and self-organization and being a morning person that they've never consistently ever demonstrated themselves to have. Or if they did, it was like, you know, some other time in the life when they were like, well, I remember, you know, 20 years ago when I was in the military, I got up at 4 a.m. Yeah, because you had someone yelling at you and that was your job. <laughs> it's way different now. So, you know, like we are always changing. We are always in flux. And to look back at our past selves, yeah, sometimes that can be inspiring. You know, sometimes if we look back at obstacles we overcame and say, oh, you know what? I did demonstrate resilience in that situation. Maybe I could do it again. Yes, that's great. And we can look back at, at what worked and somehow get lessons. Oh, you know what? It's clear to me that I do better when I use a calendar. That's true for me. In the past, when I have succeeded, I've used a calendar. Okay, cool. But there are other things you can look at, you know, oh, when I was 25, X, Y, Z was true. Well, 45, probably not true now. <laughs> so, you know, disaggregating um, what pieces of that are useful and what pieces are not, I think is a really important exercise. But you cannot do anything productive with yourself if you don't have a realistic, grown-up, honest awareness of how things are for you right now you just can't yeah and like i i love like teaching this like small little exercise to new coaches because i always take like one coach through like a mentorship to kind of get them ready to like go on their own and do their own thing and when we get into like the business section of you know now that you have all this fitness knowledge how do we apply it and I always tell him the story that, you know, in the consultation, I had one guy come to me and he was like, I want to train with you five days a week. And I'm like, sweet. When was the only, like the other time in your life where you've actually trained five days a week? And he's like, none. I'm like, let's start with one. And then I tell like the coach, I'm like, you know, the typical coach will like in their head, like, oh, five days a week, hundred bucks an hour. Like, holy shit, I'm making a lot of money. Yes, let's do it. But like, how long is that going to last before they're like, oh, I'm too sore. I can't make it in. And then they kind of just fall off. And I tell them like exactly what you were saying, like just make that like needle, like move a little bit like that one day a week and then start slowly progressing into more days a week or home workouts, whatever it is. And it's like the small little realistic goals are going to like last a lifetime. And just to piggyback on what you're saying too, there's a piece I kind of left out, which is that every tiny positive thing you do, must be celebrated. And I think to some people that's like, no, I have to criticize my way into change. Okay, I'm just gonna flat out say that's not gonna work. But, but celebration tells your brain, oh, this is a thing I wanna do, right? So, in the, so one of my little tiny things is I have a glass next to the bathroom sink and I get up in the morning, go to the bathroom um, and I have a glass of water. And every day I say to myself, I don't care if the rest of my day turns to shit, I had a glass of water this morning, right? And I'm like, yay, me, drinking a glass of water. And that might feel really stupid, but what I'm doing is training my brain to associate that activity with a reward. So like typically what we try to do is like, we, we try to motivate ourselves through punishment, which is like exactly the opposite of what our brain likes, right? Our brain likes rewards and achievement and progress and feeling little celebrations. So attaching like again even if it's just like oh i brush my teeth today i put on pants today good for me like find those opportunities like, even if it feels super dumb in the beginning um 
do it anyway, because it is about training that, those new neural pathways in your brain to associate, oh, I did this, I celebrate, I feel good about myself. Nice. Um, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit more towards kind of like business. So mm -hmm. I had Jonathan Goodman on my show, I can't even remember, maybe like five months ago. And we obviously talked about COVID and how it kind of disrupted the entire fitness industry. So I'm kind of like curious about your opinion now that, you know, COVID's almost been like disrupting the entire world for almost a year now. How have you seen the fitness industry change? And what do you think if you had to predict that you had like the magic ball and wand and everything, what the future is going to kind of hold for the fitness industry? Yeah, I mean, I think we've definitely seen uh, an incredibly hard hit to in-person stuff for obvious reasons. And I think the people that have been the most damaged by that have been small, kind of like small boutique gym owners um, because their space, their physical space might've been small. So like distancing is harder to do. They don't have necessarily the foundation of like massive resources that like a huge corporation would have. So I think those folks have been the hardest hit. I don't think though that in-person training will go away. I think that, you know, all of us are craving uh, in-person stuff. So as soon as like we're all collectively vaccinated, I'm sure like people are going to be traveling and going to restaurants and like having hugging parties, <laughs> you know, just, just touching each other's faces and stuff. Um, so I, I mean, I do think that human beings as a social species have an innate desire and gravitation towards in-person connections. I don't think that will ever go away. Um, you know, I think the, the folks that have managed to be the most adaptable have been able to develop online offerings and not just like, um, hey, here's a Zoom call with me doing a workout. Like they've really thought deeply about how do I use the online medium as a very specific sphere of working in. So it's not just like online is just like in person, but on the computer, they're like, you know, what? what are the features and the advantages and the cool things about working online that, um, that I could implement to add value for my clients? And, you know, I mean, you and I worked together way back when using Trainerize and even that, like that was just a very simple application of that, but that was a huge boon. It was like, here's videos, here's little chats, you know, like there's all kinds of cool things I can do with just, just that app. That's just an online workout app. I think if you take it to the next level of, you know, deepening your coaching communication, um, using all of the potential features of something, I think there are huge bonuses for people that are willing to jump on it. So like one of the biggest ones is, you know, when you were an in-person coach, you were limited by people that were in your geographic location, but now you're not. Uh, now you can coach people from all over the world if you want, depends on how you do it, right? You know, time zones are a thing, but your client base can now be more about people who are a good fit for you rather than people that are just geographically nearby. So I think that offers you the opportunity as a coach to really specialize if you, if you want or to get the audience that really uh, works for you. But I think that you know, if you're a coach or trainer that insists on only ever doing in person, I think you're probably going to really struggle in this new world. My guess is that probably most people will start to do a, uh, some kind of hybrid of online and in person. Um, whether that's your business is a hybrid business or your clients have a hybrid um, 
experience. Like maybe one day they come into the studio and then other days, you know, it's an online thing. Um, you know, there's lots of opportunities there. But my guess is it probably won't ever be just online or just in person. There's probably going to be lots of different ways of, of mixing those up. Again, whether it's synchronous, whether it's in real time, like I do a Zoom call with you, or whether it's asynchronous, like I, I, I'm in this time zone and I record something for you so that it's available for you when you wake up tomorrow morning. You know, that's a possibility too. So yeah, I think there's lots of opportunities. And I know that like large corporations like Equinox, you know, have already rolled out a lot of their online offerings. So I think they see the potential there. And I mean, the challenge is if you're a small coach, you can't just go and develop like a, an awesome app, but there's so many other apps that are already existing and applications that you can use. And it doesn't have to be sophisticated. It doesn't have to be next level shit. It can just, it can be simple if you use it effectively and understand that your greatest currency as a coach is actually your ability to connect with your clients more than anything else that that is the thing that matters the most. So get good at connecting online and using that medium to do it. 100%. And like, even for me, what I noticed, like when we first had the lockdown, I started converting my clients to just do like Zoom workouts and like donating my gym equipment to them to work out at home. The moment the gym reopened and like people started pouring back in uh, to in-person training, I had a couple people who were like, can I stay online? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I was like, can I like ask why? And they were like, well, it's kind of easier. Like I don't have to drive there. Like, yeah. and like all the people that I still train online that are like a 15 minute drive away, it's just easier for them. Cause one, they work at home. It's easier for like kids stuff. So they don't yeah. have to like, Oh, wait for grandma to come by and she'll watch you. It's just like, I sometimes train this one client with her kids in the same room and it's worked out beautifully. And the one thing I've noticed with like my online clients, I still train. It's like, we end up just chatting. And mm -hmm. I think like, that's like, like you said, like being able to connect to your client, like now it's like almost at a higher level. Cause I feel like being on zoom or whatever platform you're on, if you don't have that connection, cause it's a lot harder over a screen. Whereas like if someone's there in person, like you can like see the emotions a little bit. Sometimes your camera lags if you're online, but like if mm -hmm. you can really like communicate your message, people love it. They wouldn't want to change it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back to being a good fit for the people that you work with. Um, so, you know, yeah, if you're that high intensity group exercise, rah, rah kind of person, there's a niche for you. And then if you're that kind of quieter, more cerebral, more thoughtful person, there's a niche for you. If you like athletes, if you like older people, like there's, you know, there's a huge opportunity here to really work with people that you do feel more aligned with and in so doing also improve the connection. But yeah, it's funny you say that. Cause like my, I, I got my partner set up with, um, there's a personal training studio, like literally around the corner, but he switched to online. Cause he's like, I just like that. I can roll out of bed, have a coffee and do my workout. And I'm like, I can't argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, you know, and at least in my home, I know what I've touched and it's not like other people were touching it. I'm like, well, you know, so, I mean, I think there's lots and lots of reasons why online will continue to be, a thing and and really you know the skills to build here are effective communication and relationship skills which have always been true it's just now it's you know a yeah. different domain it's actually like a side note so funny so like i train semi-privately so i have three people at the same time in person they're all in their workout pods and like i still have one client that during that hour wants to only train at home and i was like are you okay with like still being the semi-private model but I'll have my laptop in the gym mm -hmm. and like my AirPods in and I can still communicate to you. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. And like, you've been training like that for three months and 
that's like my new normal now. It's like I train people in front of me and then I have my laptop beside me and I still train the guy at home. It's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's cool. And I think, you know, really like what we're looking at is fundamentally new ways of doing human interaction. And even just from like the logistical exercise perspective, all of a sudden everyone had to start learning body weight stuff or TRX stuff or band stuff or, you know, Hey, do you have a, I don't know, a heavy backpack that you can lift stuff? Like people had to get way more inventive when we were not able to access our Olympic lifting platform and full uh, set of bumpers. Right. So I think even just from a tactical point of view, it does ask you to be inventive and it could be that there's stuff that we haven't even thought of yet. And I think if you're a creative coach, and I know that's kind of a hard thing to hear because it's really hard to be creative when you're stressed, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of fitness professionals are super stressed right now uh, for a very good reason, because it's like, how can I make a living at this? We had to close our studio. My landlord wants rent. Like there's all kinds of very real pressures on you. So I don't want to be flippant about it and be like, oh, just pivot. It's not that easy. <laughs> um, there's gonna be some real hard times ahead, but I do think that we're going to emerge on the other side being better than we were before. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then I also had another question from Facebook from Kathy. Um, she says, as a person just venturing out into the nutrition and fitness coaching world, what is something that you could offer slash put out there just to get your feet wet? Or how do you figure something out like that? Uh, so we're talking like in terms of business, like to, to build a business? I think so, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, what what I suggest with anyone starting out is I, I think there's a lot of a lot of people feel understandably anxious about like, oh my God, how do I how do I start? Um, like there's so much to learn. How do I present myself? And I think people often feel like I have to get to a full business model, you know, and then launch it. Right. But there's so much stuff that can happen in between. And there's a really good book out there. I think it's called The Innovator's Method. And they talk about rapid prototyping and they show some examples of like, just get to the absolute baseline shittiest way of communicating your product in an early phase out in front of a person. So they use the example of like Google Glass. And like before they even built Google Glass, they were like rigging things with like a paper clip and someone behind a whiteboard and like, like, like literally making this thing out of office supplies <laughs> and prototyping the idea that you could type on a keyboard and like, anyway, so, uh, you know, like take, take the, the most basic unit of whatever it is you're going to offer, scribble it on a cocktail napkin or put it into a five minute conversation and test it on anyone who will listen and get feedback, like go to your mom or your dog or your, you know, your, your roommate or whoever and say, listen, okay, so I, I'm just going to role play like a 30 second coaching pitch to you or a 30 second nutrition talk or whatever. Here's a, here's a shopping list I made. Tell me what you think of it. Does this make sense? Would you buy this? Uh, what was the feeling you got from this? Like get immediate feedback, make a second improved prototype and test it again. And so progressively by the time you're working with actual clients, you have tested whatever it is you're offering over and over and over and gotten feedback from people. Um, and so really that's the best way to start. And so if you're thinking about coaching, um, again, find anyone who will listen to you. Um, run through your spiel, 30 seconds, five minutes, and then say, okay, give me all the feedback. Come up with your second prototype, test it again. Um, and that's, that's how to start. So start in like the most, you know, comfortable, low impact way, but, seek as much feedback as possible. So that by the time you launch, you've practiced, like, let's say you're, we're talking about your sales pitch. 
Well, you know, but by the time you try it on a real client, you'll have practiced it 10 times. Um, in terms of like, well, where do I start? You know, ask five of your friends, hey, listen, if you were just, if you're thinking about nutrition coaching or fitness coaching, where would you, how would you start looking? Would you Google? Would you check Facebook? Would you ask someone like, where would you look? So start like leveraging your family, friends, you know, ho whoever to, to get that early information and then keep iterating. And then you too can try, you could try a Facebook ad. You could try a Facebook group. You could try an Instagram post, see which one works the best. It's like that hotter, colder game. You know, you're like, yeah. I'm getting warmer. I'm getting colder. People often think like there's some big secret to business. Honestly, it's prototyping and iteration because what works for me is not going to be what works for you. I mean, there's kind of universal laws. Like you have to be a, you know, work on your communication skills, like I said, but you know, some people are Instagram stars. Some people are text messaging stars. <laughs> like, you know, some people have a huge social network. Some people live in a small town where they're the only game in town. Some people live in a big city where there's tons of people to choose from. So like everyone's game is going to be different but you can only know what works by prototyping and iterating over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I think for a lot of like newer coaches, they're just too scared to like put themselves out there, but you kind of need to do that to see what works and what doesn't. And like, yeah. you know, I always tell new coaches that I take under my wing, like for social media, I'm like, just post something. I don't even care yeah. what the hell it is just to have your name pop up constantly and mm -hmm. document your journey. So then yeah. whenever that person that senior posts are like, I need some nutrition coaching. And then boom, they think of your name. It's just put yourself out there, see what works and what doesn't. Are you still there? Oh, there you are. No, oh, bad connection. I hate that. <laughs> oh no. Can you still hear me? No, no. Can you hear me? Now? Yeah, here we are. You're back. Oh, geez. Did you hear anything I said before? Um, <laughs> you were like, it's just, you said something like starting a conversation or something like that. Like, just post yourself in. Um, so yeah, I was basically just saying, like, you need to put yourself out there as much as possible. So then, one, you can see what works and what doesn't and constantly test, retest. Basically what you just said, I was just reaffirming how awesome you are. <laughs> well, thanks. And since we clearly agree with each other, we, we must both be right. But I, you know, I think, like, a lot of people have a fear of feedback because um, they expect it's going to be critical, right? And so if that's something that you fear, you can also ask the person that you're testing with, hey, tell me what I did well. What could I do more of? You know, how was I going down a good road and I could just do a little bit more of that? Like that's totally legitimate feedback too. Um, but you have to get over the fear of feedback. Like just push through it, like just rip that Band-Aid off because that's the only thing. Because feedback is actionable information. It tells you what to do next. And if you don't collect feedback, you're never going to know. And, and that applies for coaching practice across the board. You know, at the end of every session, take two minutes, do a feedback check-in. How was that? Did we do the things you, did we focus in the areas you wanted to focus? Did you enjoy or appreciate this? What could I do? Like feedback loops should be frequent and and like they should be small right as often as possible as honest as possible you know it doesn't have to be a huge like let it all hang out session but as often as possible you should be seeking actionable information that tells me what to do next so that over time you know like let's say every piece of feedback nudges you 0.5 percent or one percent in the right direction well you know once you stack up a bunch of those 
you're going to be moving in the right direction. You can't not be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe to end this episode, because I know my dog is like whining in the background, wanting to go outside. If you had to leave some like parting words for the audience or a joke or whatever side story you want to end it off with, here's your chance. <laughs> Well, I, I'm, I'm colossally horrible at telling jokes, actually. I, I do seem to have an impairment in this area. But, um, you know, I think the thing I'd want to leave people with is like, the time that we're recording this, I'm sure there's that desire for transformation or change or, you know, can, like, can, we, just, can we just not be in 2020 <laughs> right now? Can we, can we do something different? And I think that's a really awesome, very human desire, right? Humans love transformation stories so you know celebrate that desire and honor it and respect it um, and at the same time don't fall into the fantasy of it um, there really is you know fast transformation is what we call trauma right like you know uh the the fast slide of the united states into anarchy is traumatic for people it's not like yay you know this is great i, I love all these crazy changes that are happening no, people don't feel that way, right? It's traumatic and disturbing and um, difficult to process. So transformation is a cool vision, but as a life plan is not a very good one. And so what I would say instead is look for those 0.1% adjustments. I'm not even gonna say improvements, but like adjustments that you can make consistently in your daily life. I mean, it's, it's the secret to investing, right? Patience, time, compound interest, <laughs> like 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, over and over and over and over again. Because the game is really consistency. It's not transformation. And so your goal is to stay in the game more than anything else uh, and just keep adding those 0.1%. So, you know, that's going to look different for each person. For a coach, it might be, how do I keep adjusting my business to adapt to the new reality? Um, for a client, it might be like, you know, how do I get 0.1% better? But the game that we are playing is the consistency game of 0.1%. And so with that frame, maybe if you're listening, um, you know, ask yourself as you leave this podcast, what's my 0.1% that I know that I could do every single day for at least a month and, and maybe the rest of my life? Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. You crushed it. This was amazing. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you should be my PR manager. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Ironclad Body Training System audio version. Boys and girls, I am so, so humbled to have made this book and for you to purchase it so from the bottom of my heart I thank you and I am so excited to go on this journey with you because for me being a podcaster I love to talk with individuals and ramble about random stuff all the time so when I was writing this book, I always had in the back of my head, I need to make an audio version. So this audio version of my book is going to be almost like a director's cut version. If you've ever bought your favorite movie and watched it with the director's cut, you know that 
the movie will start playing and then on the top right hand corner or a split screen the director will start talking about the purpose behind a scene and add some commentary to what's happening and that's exactly what you're going to experience in this audiobook and on top of that giving you some more insight on the exercise the way I programmed certain things together what to look out for and what to do in certain situations so I highly recommend you listen to this as you're driving what you're doing like you know cutting your grass and you're listening to this this would be great to kind of prep you for the program so once again I welcome you to the ironclad body training system a step-by-step guide to building a strong and resilient body by yours truly Rafal Matuszewski. Here we go. Chapter 1, The Introduction. Welcome to the Ironclad Body Training System. It feels surreal to me that I would write a fitness ebook and share it with the world. I remember when I first started in the industry, I would look up to other coaches with books and ebooks and tell myself, wow, maybe one day I could write my very own book too. Before I get into it, for those who are new to my work or don't know who I am, let me introduce myself. My name is Rafael Matuszewski. I have a very complicated last name that no one can pronounce as well as my first name. Many people have trouble even getting that right. So that's why, growing up, I've had a lot of nicknames such as Raf, Raphael, Ralph, Ruffles, Rafe, and the best one, Renee. And then here's the first little preview of the commentary of Director's Cut. Renee, (laughs) I like to pick up my groceries from my grocery store by ordering online. How it works is I, you know, online shop and I select the time slot. I drive to the grocery store and they pack the groceries in my bag, in my uh, trunk and, you know, off I go. So... To get my groceries in my car, I have to call them and be like, hey, my name's Rafael Mashevsky. I'm here to pick my groceries. And as they found me in the system, they go, yep, Renee, we got your order right here. We'll be out shortly. And then they hang up. And I'm like, Renee? How the hell did you get Renee from Rafael Mashevsky? So I, for the longest time, have always had funny incidents where my name Not even my last name, my first name's butchered. So for all you out there, Rafael is the way to say it. But you can refer to me as Raf, and we can all get along, high-five each other if we ever meet in person. I immigrated to Canada from Poland when I was three. My mother raised me with with immigrant values and principles which are instilled in me today and is probably the reason why I am the way I am immigrant hustle. That's what I call it. Growing up, I saw my mother work her ass off every day to provide for me along with my grandparents. As immigrants, you latch on whatever job you can get and stick with it to make sure you can put food on the table and pay rent. Seeing this immigrant hustle growing up made me realize shit doesn't come to you quickly and you have to work hard for it or you'll never get whatever you want in life. 
I'm thankful for my immigrant upbringing because the values I learned are instilled within me forever and I'll pass them on down to my future children. I honestly believe if you look at any immigrant business owner, they have a work ethic like no other. People like Elon Musk, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Ariana Huffington. The list could go on. These people have all gone through life experiences that only immigrants could have gone through. Compared to someone growing up in a suburban neighborhood with more opportunities available compared to an immigrant child in Canada or America where they might not have had the chance or opportunity to play recreational hockey with their friends but instead work to help the family pay bills. I'm not saying that all children brought up in a family with more financial freedom have a disadvantage. It's ultimately up to the parents on how they instill their values and principles in their children. Now, on to my story of how I got to where I am today. Growing up, I started to notice a weight gain slowly creeping up. By the time I reached high school, I had weighed in over 200 pounds standing at 5'8". During this time of my life as a high school boy, the opposite sex had a significant influence on my life and I quickly learned that being overweight puts you in a category of a non-existent human male. Unmistakably, this was tough for me because I've always been somewhat a hopeless romantic searching for the one. But more on that later. The stereotypical picked last in gym class being bullied, being too slow and too fat for anything, high school was tough for me. I tried losing weight before, but I was not successful, and I felt like giving up and constantly would ask God and the universe, why? Then, the summer of grade 10, something switched in my head. I was motivated and determined to be successful in my quest to lose weight finally. I read probably every single article on the Men's Health website and started to compile a plan and follow through on it. I went from a slob to doing something active every single day and eating fruits, vegetables, and lean protein instead of chips and soda every day. After two months, I lost 60 pounds and everything changed when I came back to high school after the summer break. Everyone was impressed with my transformation. Everyone noticed and spoke to me. Girls finally realized I was alive. And one person came up to me and said something that would change my life forever. Will you train me? Then it clicked in. When I heard those words, I knew what I was meant to do on this earth. I was supposed to help others break out of the prison of being and feeling overweight, depressed, and trapped. My sole mission was to help as many people as possible as I once felt the same way. From high school, I immediately got certified as a personal trainer, read every fitness book out there, went to conferences, seminars, read strength and conditioning research, and went into every mentorship I could. This drive led me to an internship with a local professional football team my personal training job at a big box gym, then a one-on-one boutique gym, then starting my own business and opening up my own gym. And now today, a fitness podcaster, online coach, social media manager, 
in-person coach for select clients, and finally, a rehab and mobility trainer for a local clinic. From the outside looking in, one would say I accomplished a lot and left my mark on the industry, but for the longest time, I never felt that way. My entire career has almost been in a humble euphoria of imagination, always thinking one day or eventually I could do that. After a while, my peers in the industry and my wife would tell me that I'm an incredible coach with many talents to offer to others, but I would constantly not believe it as I would look at myself as a student and still learning from other coaches that I look up to. But starting my podcast, Cut the Shit, Get Fit, I began to realize other coaches were looking up to me. I found it strange because I always thought I was still new, learning, taking it in, but after close to 10 years in the industry, I've accumulated enough experience and study that others want to learn it from me. This realization is the reason why I wanted to put this ebook together. I wanted to share my experience and interpretations of all the continuing education I've accumulated over the years. This book contains my philosophy and principles of training and how I apply them to, er- to the everyday Joe and Jane that wants to move and feel better along with looking better. This book is written for any coach out there looking for guidance for coaching their clients or solely a fitness enthusiast needing some direction and a safe and effective program. Safe and effective. Those two words should be in every single coach's vocabulary when it comes to training and programming. Working with the general population for 95% of my career I found many similarities in posture, pain, asymmetries, emotions, etc. for the regular Joe and Jane. What it boils down to are achy and non-functional joints that cause pain because of years of inactivity sitting at a desk. I think I have one of the best systems out there to help anyone and everyone who's experienced achy sore joints and want to continue to be active, happy, and healthy. Some things to note. You'll notice throughout this ebook a couple of things. Number one, I give credit where it's due. Many people I've looked up to over the years have influenced my training philosophy, and I mentioned their names in this book along with quotes and other things. A lot of the stuff that I put in my book is literally just stolen from another coach. And earlier when I mentioned how I accumulated all this knowledge, it was from all these different coaches. And I kind of took what I saw very valuable from each one, and I constantly did that and started molding it into my own training method. So really, I didn't really come up with a new way of coaching or a new, you know, super sophisticated program. It's an accumulation and a blend of what I think is considered one of the best ways of training for getting out of pain and getting stronger and looking better. Number two, my humor. If I had to explain my personality, the best way to describe it is the humor of a 13-year-old boy. My wife especially hates it. When I'm being immature and laughing about something idiotic, like something as childish as farts, but I try to utilize that funny energy into my writing and communication skills to my clients. And uh, if you know me really well in person, 
you definitely know where this is coming from. But I've utilized that immatureness in my writing style, in the way I podcast, and just being real with my clients because for the longest time, I always put this facade up of being really, really professional and kind of quiet down my true personality. And only the last couple of years, I've been really coming out of my shell and showing who I really am. And I think that's a huge, huge change in my life recently of just being me. And people appreciate that a lot more. All right, on to number three. I swear, like a lot. I don't know what it is, but I tend to drop some F-bombs and use other cuss words regularly trying to explain training. Concepts and rants about stupid shit I see in the gym. Oh, there I go already. Yeah, so I do swear quite a bit, and if you listen to my podcast, Cut the Shit, Get Fit, that should already give you a hint just from the title, but, you know, one person did ask me why I swear so much, but, you know, that's true, me being true to myself, you know, where I grew up, I didn't have the best surrounding of people and my environment and also growing up you know being able to swear was frowned upon so I think the parenting style of my parents telling me not to swear made me want to swear even more but for those who have gentle ears just remember you will be hearing some f-bombs and some other swear words so just a heads up so let us move on to number four my interpretation. Many of the methods and principles I mentioned in this book have been taken from other professionals and organizations, and I naturally took their information, interpreted it, and applied it to my own system. If you disagree with something, great. That's the beauty of the fitness industry. You can have your own opinion. Remember, what I say in this book is not the end-all be-all, and you should develop your ideas and interpretations as long as you have the results to prove and show for it. Also, an important thing to note, probably in a year, I will change my mind to at least 50% of the information put in this book as my quest for more knowledge will continue. This statement being said, don't get angry with me if I go post a new video or blog post in three months completely arguing about something I said in this book. Now, let's rock and roll and get this thing started. That being said, I always reevaluate myself that if I can look back a year from now and go pick out a couple things that I used to do for my programming, my coaching, or the way I thought, and it's changed, I know I'm on the right track. Because there's always a better way, a more efficient way, and to get to the end goal. So any coaches listening out there, if you are doing the same thing, over and over and over again how do you expect to get a different result this is why continuing education is so important to me and it should be important to you so let's move on and get this book going the thought process behind the program over the years my approach and philosophy to training have evolved into something I believe is 
one of the best strategies for building a resilient body. I haven't discovered some magical training technique or rainbow-filled corrective exercise that will fix every human being, but I have, however, combined many different principles I've stumbled upon over the years and put them in a neatly tight-knit package for you to use. Many of the training methods, exercises, theories, and ideas mentioned in this book might look familiar to you, and it should. If you're like me, you're on the quest to finding the best information out there and want to apply it to yourself and your clients. When I first started in the industry, I paid close attention to the heavy hitters. I realized they knew their shit and I should learn their systems and apply it to my training and the training of my clients. After multiple conferences, certifications, blogs, articles, DVD sets, mentorships, and having beers with coaches I look up to in an Irish pub drinking a lot of Guinness, I realized something. There were so many systems out there for training that all came to the same outcome. But why not combine many of these into one organized system? Before we get started, I want to give a disclaimer and give all the credit to those coaches I looked up to and utilize their systems, ideas, and theories to make this possible. Here's a list and it's in no particular order. Mike Boyle, Dan John, Gray Cook, Dr. Stuart McGill, Dr. Andrew Spina, Dr. Charlie Weingroff, Diane Lee, Eric Cressy, Tony Gentlecore, Dean Somerset, Dr. Greg Rose, Alan Cosgrove, Rachel Cosgrove, Ben Bruno, Lee Peel, and Jonathan Fass. And finally, exercise.com, men's health, bodybuilding.com, and other websites that I had full exercise descriptions that I used for this book. This realization started this project. Please let me introduce you to the Ironclad Body Training System. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what is the Ironclad Body? For those history buffs out there, this might be a review for you, but for those who don't know, the Ironclad was a steel armored warship in the early 19th century. First developed by the French in November 1859, which was called the Glyore, it was so badass that the British quickly put into production their own to keep up. Ironclad warships became the weapon to have to show their dominance and strength as a world power. I want to turn you into a badass steeled armored warship to have dominance and strength over not only the weights in the gym, but over your life. But we need to start somewhere, don't we? We can't just slap some steel over your body right now and hope for the best in hopes that the rest of your body will work, right? When I started with a new client, I would always explain the first steps to building a resilient ironclad body is to start with a foundation. Just like building one of these ships, we need to start with the most vulnerable parts and make sure they are secure and robust before we pack on more layers. I always go back to the basics because I find many people believe they are more advanced than they truly are. I like to use the word prerequisite as I believe that in training 
your body, you should have specific movement quality, strength, and resiliency before moving on to something more difficult or super sexy like the video you watched on YouTube last night of a guy doing some crazy-ass push-up variation. I think this belief that you should automatically move onto something more difficult because it looks cool and you think you should be doing it is where everyone goes wrong. Let me ask you this. If you signed up for a karate class for the first time, would you tell your instructor that you're advanced because you practiced some kicks and punches at home doing a workout DVD? No, probably not. The instructor would either disown you and call all the other dojos in town to ensure they don't let you sign up or simply place you in the white belt category to have you practice the basics. But for some odd reason, when it comes to exercise, you're allowed to progress when you want to. That doesn't make sense to me. There should be a precise order and progressive ladder you should follow. What you will achieve in this program? Well, you'll become an ironclad warship, duh. But all joking aside, this program is for anyone who's experienced joint pain, dealing with current joint pain, has a bunch of old injuries, needs to improve their mobility and flexibility, wants to get strong, feel like they are back in their early 20s, and of course, shooting rainbow lasers out of their biceps when they finish this program. Okay, maybe no rainbow lasers, but you will, however, be able to improve joint function and health, improve movement quality, gain more mobility and flexibility, get stronger, improve grip strength, deadlift like a badass, shed some fat and build some solid muscle, complete some bodyweight chin-ups and pull-ups, and take a sweet selfie on Facebook and share it with your friends online on how you built your body into a resilient ironclad body. Alright, let's get started. As you begin the first phase of this program, you might feel like it's too easy, or dumb, and maybe, possibly, a whole lot of bullshit, but I urge you to believe me. Take my hand, and I'll show you the magical place of the strong and resilient ironclad body. Now, if you've read this far, you're probably all fired up and lit, as the kids say today, to get going and build yourself the most resilient body out there. But let's pump the brakes for a second. How can we create a foundation without knowing what we're working with? I'm going to share with you my movement assessment that you can use on yourself and your clients to ensure safety, find red flags, and any pain that might pop up and contradict any exercise given in this program. This assessment is a collection of assessments and screens I've picked up over the years and compiled together. I believe these tell a great story of how your body moves and functions and is the best way to self-assess as well as assess clients. As a side note, I believe I'm the only one that's created a program in a book that provides a full movement assessment, so that's pretty badass. And going off of that, this is one of the things that, as a coach, when I first started, I would buy a lot of other coaches' books and see how they programmed. So it kind of gave me an inside look of how I should program for myself and for my clients. And the one thing that always stood out to me was there was never an assessment. You know, I'm very FMS-based, which is the functional movement screen, and it made sense to me, you know, like put a standard on movement, and that will dictate how the program would look like for the client to improve uh, their movement quality. 
So a lot of times when I would buy these books, you look at the program and you have barbell deadlift. And I'm like, oh, awesome. Like, I'd love to deadlift. But what if you get that general population buying this book and you see the barbell deadlift and they haven't touched their toes since, you know, two decades ago and they have, you know, pain while doing forward flexion or they might have had a herniated disc at one point or maybe they had a fusion surgery and now they're following this program where it's going to actually make them worse. So I thought if I was ever going to make my own ebook, I'm going to include an assessment that would help, you know, guide the individual where they should be working at. Also, in the upcoming pages and program, there is a title for each exercise that is in red, which is a link straight to one of my YouTube videos. These videos are demos and tutorials to give you the closest thing to me coaching you one-on-one. This is the other thing. A lot of times when I bought these books, it was always like a picture of start position and end position. And I always told myself that I wanted to create um, a ebook where it would be almost like me coaching you. So I spent a lot of time filming um, all the exercises, both demonstration and tutorial, so you understand. So when you look at the program a little bit further down, you'll see a still image of the video, both dem- a demonstration and tutorial, and the title right above it, just like I said earlier. So for example, if you see bodyweight push-ups, you click the actual title bodyweight push-ups. It's in red, the entire description's in red. So you click that and it goes right to my YouTube channel so you can watch the video, which is what I think is freaking awesome. So keep an eye out on that. And if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me. All right, the ironclad assessment. So there are 12 movements that we're gonna go over. We have the face the wall squat, the active straight leg raise, the toe touch, the wall lat touch, seated active hip internal rotation, seated hip uh, external rotation, seated T-spine rotation, breathing, the segmental cat-cow or cat-camel, whatever you want to call it, and the active shoulder external rotation, and the active shoulder internal rotation, and the FMS push-up. So let's dive into each one of these, and I'll explain what I'm looking for. Also, you should know each assessment exercise is a pass or fail. You can either perform it or not. Feel free to add in notes such as, Client performs the squat to 90 degrees, then left ankle collapses and and the torso twists from the right. The more notes and details you can put into the notes section, the better. More information for you and gives you a baseline on what to work on and when you're moving forward. Pro tip. At any time, if the client or yourself feels pain in any of these movements, stop. Don't be a hero and try to impress me. Write down pain was experienced and move on and seek a therapist such as a chiropractor, physiotherapist, or a FR therapist. I can't stress this enough. If something hurts, don't be a dumbass and keep going through it. Your brain's going to remember that and you're going to cause more issues down the road. Also, another thing to note is each test will be performed with three repetitions similar to the functional movement screen. The reason behind this is many types of people are new to the movement 
and merely need a couple of repetitions for their bodies to understand the motor control pattern. Also, also, if you are assessing or self-assessing, make sure to film yourself. Don't be stupid and just perform the assessment and go, yeah, I did it, let's crush this program now. Film each movement from a front view and a side view, then watch yourself after. Do you follow the specific guidelines outlined below? Yes, no, write down notes. For each movement that you pass, write down a score of one. And any movement you didn't pass, put down a score of zero. At the end of the 12 movements, write out your final score. This final score will be your deciding factor of what level program you follow and will be explained further a little later in this book. Okay, so the first one is the face the wall squat. Also a corrective exercise, I like using the face the wall squat as it also shows the limitations of the squat pattern. The setup. Approach a wall, preferably with no nail pops, electrical outlets, or posters of Justin Bieber, as it may affect the performance of the movement. Stand about four inches away from the wall, using your big toe as the measurement marker. Place your hands by your side at a 45 degree angle, having the toes pointed forward to begin the descent into the squat and stop the moment the individual or yourself touches the wall with either their knees or face. Make sure you do not cheat on this one as most people will turn their heads sideways so make sure you watch the uh, video tutorial on how to do it. Now the things to look out for is things like the neck position, loss of balance, valgus collapse, the butt wink, knees pushing outwards, collapse arches, and any other kind of compensations. The moment the client or yourself feels stuck or can't go any further is their true squat depth before compensation happens. Eyeball their depth in the degrees and jot it down on your recording sheet. A pass is 90 degrees in the depth with no butt wink and a fail is anything less than 90 degrees and this is a easy way to um, determine where your squat depth should be for yourself or your client. Now, the active straight leg raise. Just like the functional movement screen created by Gray Cook, the active straight leg raise determines the dynamic mobility of the flexed hip as well as the initial and continuous core stability as the pattern is performed. Also, the available hip extension of the other hip is observed. It is merely an observation of the ability to separate lower extremities in an unloaded position. This also tells me whether or not an individual should be deadlifting off the ground. So this one is a super important one. So the setup, lying down in a supine anatomical position, place the FMS board or a 2x4 underneath the back of the knees. Having the board underneath the knees will determine if the client can lift one leg without the other assisting. The moment the opposite leg raises off the board, you stop the test. Next, make sure both feet are together, pointed towards the ceiling. A non-flexed toe makes it easy to cheat this test. Ask the client to lift one leg off the ground slowly and keep an eye out on the foot on the ground. The moment you see it turn out slightly, ask the client to stop and hold the leg position they end up in. Eyeball, again, where their ankle bone is and use the dowel to mark it. Holding the dowel up in the position where the ankle bone stopped at, ask the client to drop down their leg and return to the starting position. 
with the marked dowel eyeball where the dowel is in relation to the leg. Looking at the knee joint and hip joint, where does the dowel end up? If the dowel is dead center, the client has pass act a straight leg raise. Anything higher or in line with the hip joint is gravy, but anything less, we have some work to do and the toe touch is determined whether or not we'll be deadlifting off the floor, like I said earlier. Now, a lot of this information can be tough listening to it over audio, so I highly recommend that you read over all the criteria in this ebook to make sure you're doing everything correctly. And again, I go over it um, in the tutorial, so make sure you click the tutorial. Mm, so some things to look out for, arching of the lower back, the foot turning out, climb moving too quickly, the opposite knee coming off the board, pelvic, the, the pelvis rolling over, and uh, a pass would be the marked dowel position dead center or greater between the knee joint and hip joint, fail anything less than the marked dowel position. And again, make sure you check the videos. Toe touch. The toe touch assessment has been around since the dawn of time, but I love using it to determine someone's ability to deadlift off the floor. This is a great one that I always uh, add together because sometimes what you'll see is people do a really good job um, with the active straight leg, and then they do the toe touch test and they can't touch their toes. And you're like, oh, what the hell's going on here? Or vice versa. So this just gives you a lot more information. Now, don't judge me too quickly. Touching your toes doesn't mean the end-all, be-all for deadlift allowance. I'm also checking the integrity and stability of the lumbar, thoracic, and cervical junctions. When I see clients that are not able to flex your thoracic or cervical junctions uh, in my head, I can for sure make the call that this that if this person had to straight bar deadlift off the floor, it would cause some problems. So make sure you watch the videos. I'm going to say that over and over again. So things to look out for in that toe touch is things like the knees bending, the loss of balance, neck position, if they can use their hips to hinge, if they flex at the lumbar spine first, and again a pass is touching the toes and a fail is not. Now the next one is the wall lat touch. The lat test evaluates shoulder flexion, which includes the flexibility of the lats, shoulder joint restrictions, and scapular motion limitations. I love using this one. This is stolen from the TPI, which is another great assessment tool. And this tells me a lot about the individual's ability if they're able to also press overhead. So the setup get into a modified wall sit position, place back against the wall and slowly slide back and the pelvis down the wall until the knees and feet are just short of 90 degrees. The client should appear in a half sitting position and against the wall, make sure the feet are directly below the knees and not too close to the wall. Make sure the feet are approximately shoulder width apart. Make sure the lower back is flush against the wall. Once in a proper half sitting position, begin the test by having the client extend both arms out in front so they are both parallel with the floor. Thumbs should be pointing upwards and the elbow should be locked out. Ask the client to begin raising the arms up in front of them without bending the elbows as far as they can go, keeping the thumbs in the same direction. 
Now, the seated active hip internal rotation. Checking hip internal rotation is crucial to human performance and movement. Having adequate hip internal rotation will be essential for many of the exercises in this program as well as most people fail miserably at this and will need a lot of hip mobility work which we'll cover later in this book. I like to test active hip internal rotation as active mobility is what you'll get out of a client during the hour. Compared to passively checking the range of motion won't give you the whole story when it comes to program design or how the client and or the patient moves when asked to. So sitting on a massage table or a plyo box or or something that's high enough though their feet are dangling, um, you know, place a foam pad or a foam roller in between their knees and then have them place their hands on their hips and instruct them actively to rotate internally at their right and left hip and test both sides and see if there's a discrepancy. And again, watch the tutorials. Things to look out for again is overall posture and facial expressions is a big one. So people can cheat movement, but if you look at their face, if it's really struggling with them, they can do like that scrunchy face like, I'm really trying to get it. And I'll tell you a lot, um, if their torso starts leaning to one side to get more range, pain in the hip, pain in the groin, and ankles trying to get more range, they do this kind of weird, like they'll lead their foot to one direction to get a little bit more range. And again, I have more um, stuff of criteria if you read the book. All right, so seated active hip external rotation. Just like above, checking active hip external rotation is also crucial to human movement and performance. Being able to externally rotate uh, the hips as it's associated with better dynamic control for hip stabilization when landing from exercises such as box jumps or simply just running. Also, let us not forget that having adequate external rotation of our hips allows us to do exercises such as the aka sexy frog which will be later shown in this program and dominate in sports sports just like the like MMA or playing hockey especially if the position you're playing is something like the goalie again the reason behind checking active hip external rotation is to see what you're working with in my opinion when you uh, passively check someone's range you're not told the entire story of how their body works when it's asked to so same setup, you're sitting on a table or a massage table or a plyo box high enough so your feet are dangling off and you want about four to five inches of space in between your knees and then this time you're gonna rotate your hips externally so you're leading your heel to the midline as you rotate. And again, check the ebook for more information of what to look for. All right, so the seated T-spine rotation, the seated T-spine rotation test is designed to identify how much rotational mobility is present in the thoracolumbar spine. Excellent separation between the upper and lower body is significant to help generate speed and maintain a stable posture in athletic movements. Again, this is another one stolen from the TPI and I thought it was brilliant. And your setup is you're going to be sitting on a box that's about 90 degrees, so a regular bench will do. Feet are placed together, knees are squeezing a foam pad, dowel across the arms or across the arms, and you're rotating left to right. 
and I like to use a box on an angle. So when you sit on the edge of the box in an angle position, when you look at the edge, you have 45 degrees on both sides. So all you have to do to pass this test is rotate and having your elbows or the dowel holding in your arms in the front kind of old school bodybuilder uh, front squat position, having the dowel or elbows get in line with the box. And again, refer to the um, ebook for more info. All right, so breathing. I check breathing patterns as it's often forgotten when it comes to training and is the foundational movement for everything we do in everyday life. Taking the average person, let's audit their day. Wake up, sit in the car and commute for 45 minutes. Get to work, sit for another eight to 10 hours. Get back inside the car to drive home for another 45 minutes. Sit down for dinner, sit down to watch TV, then sleep and repeat. 89, 80 to 90% of someone's day is sitting. Layer that with work stress, traffic stress. There's no way for you to utilize your diaphragmic breathing as you should. This horrible cycle promotes the brain to go, well, you haven't used your diaphragm for a while. I'm going to turn that off and let you breathe through your chest instead. You then alter a basic human movement pattern, and now more problems down the road will pop up. Being able to accurately maintain diaphragmic breathing patterns while exercise is crucial to the health and integrity of your spine, especially lower back. Having full function of your diaphragm allows you to create tension when needed, controlling your pelvic floor, activating your transverse abdominis in the right sequence of core activation, helps the nervous system calm down, like the list can go on. Breathing is so crucial. Breathing and core activation will come up in this program a lot, so be sure to pay attention. So the way I like to do this is having the patient or client lying down in a supine position, one hand on their belly, one hand on their chest, and I want to see if they can breathe into that bottom hand on their belly instead of their chest. This is super, super important. And again, get back to the ebook for more information. This is the segmental cat camel or cat cow, whatever you want to call it. Um, your spine can interdependently move one vertebrae at a time, about 10 to 15 millimeters. You should be able to perform this movement when asked. When I first started using this assessment movement, I was blown away by the number of people who have stuck or non-functioning spines. To be able to flex and extend your spine when asked during specific tasks are crucial to spine integrity and longevity. This is honestly one of the best things I've ever seen. So if you know the cat camel, cat cow, whatever you want to call it, movement, think of that, but unraveling your spine one segment at a time and asking someone to do that on cue. This is actually very, very difficult. And again, my tutorial explains a lot, so make sure you watch the tutorial video um, supplied in the ebook. Now, the next couple. The supine active shoulder external rotation. Having adequate active external shoulder rotation will determine whether or not the client or yourself will be able to press overhead. I believe that majority of people out in the world who are training in a gym shouldn't be pressing overhead as they most likely don't have the mobility to press directly towards the ceiling. This dysfunctional pattern will inevitably cause injury and worse yet, a possible rotator cuff tear. So this one's a simple one lying on your back in a supine position, 
arms at 90 degrees and you're dropping your wrist into well, your shoulder into external rotation leading with the wrist towards the ground and it tells you a lot of information and the next one because we checked external rotation we're going to be checking internal rotation as well so with the internal rotation um, it's important as external rotation having a full functioning shoulder is essential to any pressing pulling or sport that requires throwing and catching Shoulder health is king, so when it comes to human performance, you want happy shoulders. So having adequate both internal and external rotation is key. And again, make sure you watch the tutorials um, for both um, internal and external rotation because there's a lot of stuff in there. All right, last one is the FMS push-up. The FMS push-up is used as an initial observation of mechanical core stabilization. The goal is to initiate movement with the upper body in a push-up pattern with the arms extended higher than regular push-up position without allowing motion in the spine or hips. Placing an individual in a compensated position will allow you to observe the person's movement quality and stabilization efforts when it comes to the body's ability for extension in a core exercise. And this is a quote from Gray Cook. The push-up movement pattern tests the ability to stabilize the spine in the sagittal plane during the closed kinetic chain, upper body symmetrical pushing movement. This is huge. This tells you a lot of information about yourself and the client. And again, watch the tutorial videos. It'll give you a lot more information. And I've also provided an assessment sheet. And that's another thing too. You'll see that all the workout um, the program, like at the end of every phase, I'll have workout sheets that you can print off so you can write in your weights and reps and sets. And again, at the end of this thing, if you scored 7 out of 12 or less, you are doing level 1 program. If the total score that you get in this is between 7 and 9 out of 12, you can do level 2. If your total score is 10 or higher, then you're going to be doing level 3. And again, this is not um, the end-all be-all. If you're like a 7, just a 7, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I should do level 2 or level 1, go level 1. And say you do your fa first phase, and you're like, honestly, this was kind of easy. Look at level two and pick up some of the exercises out there. The reason why I did these levels is there's certain exercises. If you compare all three versions of the program, it goes from like the most foundational patterns to more progressive exercises. So if you feel, for example, that a goblet squat is too easy for your workout B and you want to do the double dumbbell front squat instead, go ahead and do it if your squat mechanics allow you to. So again, this is kind of like create your own venture uh, program, and I really want people to have the um, autonomy to kind of create their own program based on what they can do with their bodies. All right, so this next section is all about pain. Section number seven, pain. Fuck my back. I don't know, awesome title. And again, this is another great example of how I swear when I present and write. All right, 
We've been all through the scenario or a similar one before. You're getting ready for work in the morning. They're all packed, coffee in hand. You reach down to grab your bag and head out the door, and all of a sudden, it happens. A sharp pain runs through your spine. You lose your breath, coffee flying through the air, and you end up on the floor in pain with coffee spilled around you. Why me? You begin to think about how you're going to get to work and try to function like a normal human being. You gather yourself, then quickly realize you can't stand upright because of your back pain. You then go ahead and crawl out of the house, dragging your bag along with you as you enter your car like Leonardo DiCaprio from Wolf of Wall Street, trying to get into his car while on a high dose of loots. As you enter your car, you then realize that your coffee that was in your hand is still on the floor in your house, spilled, wasted, and forgotten, and will probably stain the carpet by the time you get back from work. You shed a couple tears and you continue with your day, wondering what the hell happened to your back. Sound familiar? No? Well, this happened to me, and I'll forever remember that dreadful day. I've had a horrible series of low back pain from flare-up episodes to being sore in my lower back after a workout when no exercise could have made me sore. My frustration led me down a path learning from someone named Dr. Stuart McGill and opened my eyes to another world of rehab and strength training. After diving into Dr. Stuart McGill's work, I was determined to fix my back pain. I quickly learned that back pain episode I had is something that is called buckling. It's a phenomenon where you lose your breath for a second and your body feels like it's about to collapse. I look at buckling as the straw that broke the camel's back analogy. Our spines hate repetitive flexion, and after a while, I think our bodies try to communicate with us and tell us to fuck right off and stop doing flexion-based activities like bending over to load the dishwasher, pick up laundry off the floor, and the back-destroying exercise of crunches. After figuring out that daily things in a flexed position isn't the greatest for our spines, I flipped a switch and changed my mechanics of bending over to a deadlift position. Setting up into a deadlift position puts you in a more dominant and controlled position compared to a bent over hunch position to pick up something off the floor. I highly suggest you pick up this habit, pun intended, for daily activities such as loading the dishwasher, picking up laundry, picking up after your children's toys, and of course, running after your dog or child that just did something stupid and you need to go grab them. After diving into all of Dr. Sue McGill's work and had a basis to work with to get myself out of pain, I went to a physiotherapist for the first time and I was exposed to a whole new world of rehab where I could implement into my training and with my clients. After a bunch of visits and long conversations about pain, I created a plan and I put it to work. After about a year of trial and error, I was able to get out of pain and have no flare-ups. I implemented what I learned from the physiotherapist, Dr. Stuart McGill, to my training and my clients. These principles I picked up is the basis of how I train clients with pain today, at the gym, and in the clinic. It is important to note that I didn't cure myself entirely out of back pain, as I did have flare-ups down the road. When it comes to pain management, you shouldn't expect a linear line from point A, I'm in pain, then point B, I'm healed and better. Getting out of pain goes all over the place and you have to find what works. During my time with physiotherapy and Dr. Sue McGill's work, I had a handful of issues. My diaphragm function sucked, I couldn't turn my uh, TA on without my external obliques firing first, my glutes fired in the wrong sequence, my right hip stabilizers were entirely weak and useless compared to my left, 
I had a lot of work ahead of me, but I was determined to get it done because I wanted to be able to conventional barbell deadlift one day without pain and eventually hit a 200-pound deadlift, which I eventually did, and I'm close to 300 now. Yes, I know that sounds weak, but I've had a sore low back to a point where I couldn't move if I deadlifted a weight of only 95 pounds to work on form. I had a long way to go, but I was determined to get through it. I think most people with pain, just like weight loss, want the quick and easy fix, but it it takes time and a bunch of trial and error to figure out what works best, and then on top of this, continue being pain-free. Pain Part 2, and there's a sweet picture of cupping done on my back and in this um, book I don't go over cupping but I've had a bunch of podcast episodes where I go over cupping and uh, I already started thinking that I will do a second version of the ironclad body training system so this is an exclusive little point in this book that you got an inside look that I will write a part two with a little bit more on pain. So if you want to learn more about cupping, feel free to reach out to me and um, yeah, listen to my podcast episode about it. All right. Pain is subjective and individual. I think it's important to establish a baseline where you're at or where your client's at. I like to use pain on a scale of one to 10 with my client. 10 being you're in excruciating pain, like you just broke your leg and we need to take you to a hospital, and 1 being you're lying on the beach and you're about 3 drinks deep so far and feeling good. I also put things in perspective quickly when I mentioned to my clients that to be considered at a pain level of 8 to 10, you have to be at a point where we're rushing you to the hospital to the emergency room. Being clear about this delivery, many clients and people I meet will take their pain number down 1 or 2 levels. Pain is interesting to me, as our brains have a vast influence on us. Our psychology influences what we think is pain and what is not. And I link an interesting uh, research paper after that sentence that you guys should check out. I've seen scenarios where a patient comes in complaining of low back pain. The therapist works on the patient for four to six weeks with treatment, and by this point, the patient should be feeling a little bit better. The patient comes in and complains their pain is the same. The therapist puts a, the patient through some orthopedic tests, and no pain is present. The therapist asks, how did those feel? The patient replies, fine, but I'm still in pain. Another scenario I've experienced was taking a client through an assessment who had lower back pain, and before starting, she informs me that she has disc herniations and bulging discs from L5 to L1 and is in constant pain. She tried a chiropractor, physio, massage therapy, and everything you can imagine, but still in pain. I told her, I don't know what I can do for her, but I'll take her through an assessment and give her more pieces to the puzzle. I get through my assessment and notice a couple things. The first thing was the first repetition of each test was a struggle, but after a third attempt with each test, her movement improved drastically. This improvement tells me she had a lot of neural tension built up in her body. Neural tension can be defined by nerves becoming synthesized to stress under the presence of inflammation or pre-existing injury. With this combination, normal ranges of human motion can cause pain, numbness, or even tingling. 
She was so used to being in pain that it changed her movement mechanics that would prevent her from everyday activities like getting up and down from the chair. But in the assessment after the third repetition of each movement that was in, con in a controlled environment, she was able to move with minimal pain. What surprised me was taking her through the toe touch test. Um, in my mind, I knew something would trigger or flare up. As she reached down, she placed both palms onto the ground and got up. There was minimal pain in the test, and we both looked shocked. No excruciating pain, no limited movement, nothing. After the assessment, she felt better, which makes sense as movement tends to make the body feel better. Anyone in pain or dealing with an injury should move to help speed up recovery. When we are in a constant environment where our bodies can't desensitize from pain, we open Pandora's box of issues. This client had continuous signals from her brain from her brain being sent to prevent her and protect her from pain to point where it limited her in everyday life. Our brains have a considerable role in pain management. You can be so desensitized from pain that your injured shoulder that healed from surgery and went through rehab could still be sending pain signals from the brain to ensure your safety. This scenario is similar to the phantom pain with people who had limb amputation. The first step out of pain is to reset the nervous system. Don't baby your injury to a point where it takes over your life. Pain part three, pain in the assessment. And then there's a sweet picture of me doing some instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization on a wonderful woman that allowed me to use her as a guinea pig. So I'm also certified with uh, instrument-assisted soft tissue techniques, and this is honestly a way to just save the hands of the therapist. And again, I'm not a therapist, but I work under a chiropractic license with the chiropractor I work with, so I'm allowed to do these things with the um, instruction from the chiropractor. So in the clinic, if she tells me to do some soft tissue work on the person's subscap, then I will take out my tools and start doing that, maybe do some cupping, maybe some taping, and go from there. All right, so now that you're educated on pain, you might be wondering what happens when you feel pain during the assessment. To make things easy, remember this, sharp stabbing like pain is bad, and a dull ache or tightness is manageable and can be worked around. If you feel any sharp or stabbing pain in any of the movements in the assessment, stop. Write down a note of what happened and move on to the next movement. If you feel a dull ache or tightness in the movement, that's nothing to be alarmed about, but I'd note it down with the limitations. With the information gathered, I'd find a great manual therapist, physio, or chiropractor to help improve any movement pattern that has been affected by pain or tightness. I'd highly recommend you seek out a physio or a chiro if you experienced any sharp pain. By tackling on any issues early, it will save you a lot of time, headaches, and will speed up the progress of creating the resilient ironclad body we all want to have. If you're really banged up, an excellent option is to work with a physio or chiro during the duration of this program to ensure proper recovery and focusing on weak links that could limit your ability with some of the exercises. I would highly recommend that you know if you are dealing with a lot of injury, you can easily take this program to the physio and chiro if they have a 
exercise background and just be like, which exercises can I do and which ones I shouldn't? And they will tell you, like, just give out the workout sheet and they can just, like, cross out the ones that you can't do. And again, this is kind of like an a la carte menu. I want you to have autonomy on your program. So say you're doing level two and there's some exercises in there that you're not allowed to do, you can still use exercises from level one that might be a little bit uh, less aggressive on your joints. So this is where I'm really excited about the program where you can really make it your own. All right, kettlebells, they're badass. You'll notice throughout the program, the use of kettlebells is sprinkled in quite a bit. The reason behind it, it is because I think kettlebells are one of the most versatile tools when it comes to training and human movement. When I was first introduced to kettlebell training by two people by the names of Pavel and Gray Cook and first saw the exercise called the Turkish getup, I was blown away and thought to myself, that makes sense. I don't think I can prove it, but I feel like every single muscle we have inside our, in our bodies are designed for us to get off the ground. My rationale behind the statement is from a developmental standpoint. As we develop as children, our first priority is to get up off our backs to crawl, stand up, and eventually walk and run. We're designed to get up. I firmly believe that the Turkish getup is probably the most powerful exercise out there, and everyone should be practicing it every time they are in the gym. If you haven't figured out already, anytime I see, read, listen, or experience something that makes sense to me and can be put into a system, I figure out ways to implement it into my life and training methods for clients. The idea of having an exercise that starts you on the ground, lying in a supine position, reaching, then rolling over, kneeling, and then finally standing, made me realize the Turkish getup was an exercise that mimicked the developmental movement an infant goes through and reinforces our brains to tap into proper motor function. When it comes to human movement, putting ourselves in a position that reinforces proper movement mechanics and function good things tend to happen. Rather than sitting on a bench and doing bicep curls, performing the Turkish getup will allow you to build functional strength, mobility, stability, and work on any weak points you may have. Now, if you search up on Google the benefits of Turkish of the Turkish getup, you'll find a dozen articles and blog posts about it, but instead, I put a list together of what it does. So it promotes cross-lateralization, supports upper body stability, promotes lower body stability, supports reflexive stability of the trunk and extremities, ties the right arm to the left leg and left arm to the right leg, gets the upper extremities working reciprocally, stimulates the vestibular system, stimulates the visual system, stimulates the proprioceptive system, promotes spatial awareness, develops front and back weight shift, and improves upper body strength, torso strength, and hip strength. Wow, that was a long list. When you look at this list, you're probably thinking, holy shit, that is a lot of stuff happening in just one exercise. It's true, and it's the very reason why the Turkish getup and kettlebells are put in this program. Kettlebells are also great for rehab for people with back pain. Following Dr. Stuart McGill's work, he had an opportunity to work with Pavel and collaborate on some projects. And Dr. Stuart McGill was fascinated by kettlebells and by the end of it, developed a love for them and incorporated them into his sequence of rehab. Dr. Stuart McGill's sequence for rehab for uh, lower back pain is stability, mobility, endurance, strength, and then power. Working with Pavel, McGill realized kettlebells could be implemented in each sequence. 
Many people who develop, uh, develop painful back conditions have movement flaws in everyday life. The most common is the is to move the spine when it's under load, which can cause some serious damage. Repeated, repeated compression of the spine while it is bending almost guarantees eventual disc bulges, and I provide another research article to that sense. But if we correct the pattern into proper hinging mechanics to bend and lift things, then these painful conditions can dissipate by layering kettlebell progressions to a back pain rehab protocol can bulletproof and prevent the chance of reoccurring back pain as kettlebells challenge Dr. Sue McGill's sequence of stability, mobility, endurance, strength, and power. This is exactly the same thing I do in the clinic with patients all the time. I use kettlebells so much. Again, kettlebells are also unique in building grip strength. You'll see carry variations in this program, and sure, you could use dumbbells for carries, but there's a couple differences. One of the biggest differences between kettlebells and dumbbells is the weight is offset and unbalanced. The handle of the kettlebell weighs much less than the big round ball part of the kettlebell, whereas dumbbells are balanced from one end to the other. This offset weight makes a kettlebell more functional, in air quotes, than a dumbbell and helps to mimic every life everyday life occurrences of picking things up that are not exactly balanced in weight. Like, honestly, how often do you grab something in daily life and find it completely balanced? How often is that box, child, dog, entire pile of laundry, grocery bag that you're going to be picking up and pack perfectly with you in mind? Not very often. The kettlebell is more similar to a regular everyday item. Imperfect and uncooperative that are out there to fuck up your shit in your back. (sighs) When it comes to exposing the cracks in your armor, as I call it, using kettlebells is one of the best ways. I remember when I first started learning about kettlebells, I then immediately started training for my RKC certification. I realized quickly how weak and unconditioned I was. If you have any deficiencies, you'll soon understand what you'll need to work on and improve. To summarize, I believe everyone should be working with kettlebells in some shape or form. I think kettlebells are part of the foundation for improving human movement, function, resiliency, and overall strength and conditioning. Oh, right, the warm-up. And in air quotes, you actually want me to do a warm-up? So, I think by now, many of us understand the concept of a warm-up and why it's beneficial. If you are confused about what a full functional warm-up is, let's start with a list of things a warm-up are not. Number one, doing a couple jumping jacks and then doing a heavy set of bench press. Chatting with friends at the gym, then walking over to pick up a dumbbell to start your workout. Walking on the treadmill for three minutes and doing some squats and lunges with a barbell on your back. Back squatting with 300 pounds for reps. Five minutes of foam rolling and slapping 225 on the bench press, then doing 100 sets of five reps. Doing some push-ups, then your workout. Doing arm swings for 10 reps and then going into your workout. Doing a side bend stretch thing for a few seconds. Taking a selfie at the gym and saying hashtag beast mode on Instagram so everyone knows you're working out. All of these things and so many more are not in any way resemble a proper warm-up and you know this. No one likes warming up. Heck, I don't either, but it's an integral part of a great training session. 
A well-planned and executed warm-up should be in the ballpark of 15 to 20 minutes, including soft tissue work. The reason why I want people to warm up is to get the body moving more effectively and efficiently. The exercises are chosen and in the order they are put in is to ensure your body moves like an athlete and doesn't end up looking like a melted candle when squatting. This movement insurance, that I like to call, also keeps you safe and cuddled like a baby from harm, like pulling your groin or a tight hammy. We don't want that, so don't be stupid, get warmed up, and let, let's do some badass stuff in the gym. Alright, soft tissue work. Before we get into the how-to, many people I meet tend not to understand what soft tissue work is or what a foam roller is, so let's take a second and educate ourselves or get a quick refresher. Let's start this conversation with something called fascia. Fascia is how I like to describe it as a web-like structure that covers the body. It's connective tissue that's primarily made up of collagen. From the top of our heads all the way down to our toes, fascia covers us and sits right underneath our skin. It weaves around muscles and organs, connects everything together in our bodies, and is vital for so many movements we will do in this program. When our bodies stay in one position for too long, or we sit at a desk for work for 8 to 10 hours every day, our fascia can get stuck. Ever feel kind of stiff after sitting for a long time? That's your fascia and your body getting stiffer and stiffer. It's your job to keep your body moving to prevent this. This stiffening is the reason why it's so essential to foam roll and move your joints constantly. So the corny joke here is, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. It's true. Soft tissue work can, to be simply put, is self-massage with objects such as a foam roller, a lacrosse ball, which we'll cover a little bit later in this program. Just to get it out there, soft tissue work, myofascial release, trigger point therapy, self-massage, foam rolling, the list can go on on how you want to label it. It is consistent, considerable debate, so don't fall into the trap and try to prove to everyone else that you know better. Some coaches and therapists believe in it, some don't. Research and debate aside, over the years of having clients, that foam roll, every single one of them, felt better. My philosophy to training is if you get some sort of benefit from it, even if it's just as it feels better, then it's worth your time. I find when I get clients foam rolling, it gives them a chance to understand their tight spots on their bodies as well as gives them a chance to relax, unwind, and most importantly, slow down from their busy days. I like to explain to clients that foam rolling will help communicate to your nervous system and be like, hey, you can't stop, you can stop worrying about me right now, ease off, I'm good. Then, out of nowhere, people feel like they can crush their workouts after a good roll. The other thing that I mention for someone new is to think about going to massage therapy. The massage therapist, or RMT, will take their hands and work on those tight spots or knots in your body to help release tension. With a foam roller, you can mimic to a certain point what a massage therapist does, and this throwing grenades approach to improving tissue quality will help us move and feel better in the workout and in everyday life. Another benefit I educate clients and people I meet with foam rolling is getting rid of soreness faster with something called delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS for short, being sore after a workout sucks. By grabbing a foam roller for 10 to 20 minutes at home can 
speed up recovery. This way, you don't need to debate whether or not you need to sit down for your next trip to the bathroom. And again, I put a little research article attached to it. Starting with foam rolling. Using your body weight, you can position yourself to target almost any soft tissue areas by rolling back and forth from your core to your extremities, while keeping in mind to avoid rolling directly on bones and joints. Lightly rolling won't have much of an effect, so make sure you put some pressure into those target areas by positioning yourself appropriately over indirect regions of paint before you target specific spots. Slowly roll the tender areas for about 30 to 60 seconds. The particular manual pressure and stretching used in form rolling loosens up restricted movement, leading indirectly to lower pain levels. Expect some discomfort during your first few sessions. It may feel very tender or bruised at first, so be sure to start with maybe just 5 to 10 seconds per really tight area. If you have not experienced myofascial therapy work before, start with a softer foam roller and slowly progress to a denser foam roller. The only place to avoid direct foam rolling is the lower back. Instead of using the roller perpendicular to the spine, position it parallel to the spine to target the upper and mid back and the glutes slash sacrum area. By loosening up other muscles surrounding the lower back, you can dramatically decrease pain then increase mobility while protecting your spine and kidneys. There have been many studies, and again, I link another uh, research study, that have shown improvement in muscle recovery as well. I tend to advocate clients of foam roll on their off days from the gym to improve recovery. And I also add in a foam rolling tutorial that's about, I think, 12 to 13 minutes, and some demonstration videos, and also some soft tissue work with a lacrosse ball to get into the nooks and crannies. And yeah, it's a really good information about soft tissue work. All right, so moving on, the core. Keep the cage engaged, yeah, bro. Yeah, I'm super lame like that, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, I wanna to touch on this conception of core function as many coaches and therapists out there have their own take and definition. I think it's important to note what the core is and what it does to everyday movements and exercises in the gym. This idea of turning on your core sometimes seems silly to me as if your core wasn't turned on in the first place, the entire body wouldn't function. But in the world of fitness and health, words like activate, turn on, fire, my core isn't firing, and other words like these are regularly thrown out to make other people not fall asleep when it comes to the hashtag science that comes out. To make things simple, if a particular muscle of your body didn't work, the majority of your body would fall apart and do some weird stanky leg dance move everywhere you went. But when coaches say things like this and use made up words so the client will understand and want to work on their poorly functioning muscles, why not? Now, let's get an idea of what the core is. Many people only think it's the muscles around their abs or worse yet, just their abs. In reality, or at least in my opinion, your core is more than just the muscles surrounding your belly button. Even doing a simple Google search, you'll find millions of different images when you search anatomy of core muscles. This is why I have a photo here uh, that I want to get into. Now, if you look at this photo that I found on Google, it highlights some core muscles that I think are really important, but there's so much more to it. Now, here's 
what I think are the muscles included in your so-called corp. You got your transverse abdominis, aka your TA, your multifidus, external oblique, internal oblique, your diaphragms, your, your serratus, your quadratus laborum or Q, uh, QL, uh, your pelvic floor, your rectus spinae, your lats, your glute max, min, med, and finally your rectus abdominis. Like it's a long list. I could quickly add a handful more, but for the sake of keeping you interested in this book, I'll leave it as is and continue on. All the muscles listed above all work together to keep you stable, moving, breathing, and prevent you from hurting yourself when you decide to bend over, hopefully in a deadlift pattern, to pick things up off the floor. I think that's where we should start. Breathing. My take on core training begins with breathing and ends with breathing. Think of it as a core breathing sandwich. One slice of bread is a perfect inhale, and the fillings of the sandwich are the cool and sexy abdominal exercises that works all the core muscles, then finishing off with another slice of bread being your exhale. Now the question is, do you breathe through your diaphragm? Majority of people I see in the gym and in the rehab setting are chest breathers. This breathing pattern is not the most optimal for human function and performance. You leave a lot of strength and power on the table when your diaphragm is dysfunctional. Your diaphragm, in my opinion, is the first initial sequence to unlocking strength, power, and keeping your body pain-free. When you look at this diagram of where the diaphragm is placed, you'll notice a few things. And I add a little picture here of the diaphragm. Um, the diaphragm and your psoas muscles, aka your deep hip flexor muscles, run alongside the spine side by side. Your diaphragm also has two tendons that attach to the front side of T12, which is a vertebrae in your spine, as well as having ligaments that connect to your psoas and have fascial lines running all around that junction. With these two being so close together to their insertion points, they have a direct relationship for the function of um, human movement. Think about it. The psoas group allows for hip flexion, which is part of the gait cycle. Breathing is an integral part of running. You'll notice that many foundational core exercises like dead bugs, bird dogs, chops, lifts are all done in a diagonal pattern. These exercises promote proper movement patterns and make our bodies resilient and bulletproof to prevent pain and build a strong foundation. I look at the diagram as the first domino piece. The moment it drops down and hits the next domino piece, there's a chain reaction of events and creates a beautifully orchestrated symphony of human movement. But to hear and experience a symphony, you need that first piece to fall into place. If you don't have that first piece, the rest is useless, just like our core, and every other muscle won't function. Effectively, if we don't start with the basics of breathing and utilizing our Dia diaphragm. Wow, that was a mouthful. All right, next section, the program, aka I actually didn't read the rest of your book. I just skipped over to this page to do the program. Read the first part of the book. I know many of you, and I've done this myself before, is, you know, I buy a new ebook and I want to do the program and I just skip right over to the program and not the actual content of the book. So please read or in your case, you've been listening. So good on you if you've listened this far or maybe you just skip to this point but make sure you read the book all right how this program works this program is designed to be as individual as possible as i'm not a fan of cookie cutter programs for clients my process 
of creating a specific program for a client is to first to make a program for the perfect client. The client with no injuries, no limitations, no tight spots, no nonsense movement patterns, and no Zumba dance move requests in their program. Then, I write out a program for the best case scenario based on a particular goal. For example, a, programming, uh, a program focusing on developing power. I might throw in some Olympic lifts such as a hang clean for power development. I might sprinkle in some low repetition heavy back squats and pull ups for max repetitions, then finish off with a metabolic dumbbell complex at the ends. With this advanced badass workout for the perfect client with no limitations is set, I can easily regress the exercises to fit any individual with any injuries or contradictions. Before I get going, that little Zumba dance move request, I literally had a client that I used to train ask me if I could program Zumba moves into her program. And I'm like, um, no, because I'm not a Zumba instructor and I don't think we are the best match. But, uh, you know, bless her heart, I referred her to a Zumba dance instructor and she's been, uh, Going to Zumba classes regularly, so, you know, silver linings, there you go. Alright, moving on. For example, I have a client who is 43 years old, has jacked up shoulders and can't reach overhead, but wants to develop power to feel like they were back in their 20s playing college sports again. I take the behemoth of a program I designed and regress it. That Olympic lift for power can easily be switched up to a basic squat jump. It's low impact and doesn't contradict anything based on the client's movement quality. I then switch up the back squat because of the client's jacked up shoulders to a heavy dumbbell goblet squat and throw in a mobility exercise for the shoulders right after. That sweat maker of a metabolic dumbbell complex can be switched out to a body weight complex with rest after each exercise. Then lo and behold, that advanced killer workout was regressed down to fit the client's needs and still has that shine and luster as the original. The cool thing though, is as the client stays consistent and works on their tight, jacked-up shoulders, we could eventually progress them to the original program. So this method is how I put this program together and how I program for all my in-person and online clients. I like making things as individual as possible and focus on the things that the client needs to work on. Just like this program, I tried my best to filter in exercises that cover the majority of people's issues, such as tight hips and shoulders. When these two things clear up, movement patterns become so fluid and ninja-like, I can start programming any exercise and having a lot of fun, like riding a unicorn at night and leaving a bright glow of rainbow colors trailing behind. If you haven't noticed already, there are three levels to the program. I did this for a reason. Based on the assessment you've done above, it will dictate what level you follow. Don't bullshit yourself or me to thinking, well, I'm going to do level three because I'm advanced. No, stop it. Don't be dumb. Based on the assessment, if you got nine out of 12, you'll be following level three. If you scored a seven out of 12, you'll be following level two. And finally, if you scored six or less, you'll be following level one. Now above, I did put down uh, seven or less, so there is a discrepancy, and I did that on purpose because it really depends on what's going on. You can kind of, if you're kind of between six and seven, 
I would still kind of try level one and then maybe supplement some of the level two program exercises and um, see how the body feels. You can always regress or progress to level two. And the reason behind this, prerequisites. To be able to perform level three, your body should have specific prerequisites to ensure success in the program. Think of it this way. If you wanted to go to university and get a degree in whatever field you find interesting, you wouldn't take a fourth-year course uh, take 40, fourth year courses during your first semester. You'd feel lost and, and basically fail miserably and get nowhere. Same goes for exercise. If you start with the most challenging and advanced exercises, you'll fail and worse yet, injure yourself. I use the word prerequisite a lot with my in-person and online clients. I want to educate them that there is a process and procedure towards all those cool, sexy exercises you see on Instagram and YouTube. But in order to get there, you need to follow a series of progressions. Progressions and regressions are the cornerstone to how I program for clients. Knowing what their limitations are in the assessment, like this one in the book, will determine where I put them in a spectrum of progressions of exercise. There's a method to the madness, I promise, and if you follow what I've outlined in the program, that is the best suited for your needs, I can guarantee you'll end up moving and feeling better while at the same time build some solid strength. And remember, read the entire first part of the book first and then do the program. <laughs> I want to always bring that up because so many people skip. All right, so moving on. Three days of strength and conditioning and two days of active mobility. The program consists of a weekly workout regimen of three strength workouts and two mobility workouts. In total, you'll end up with five workouts a week with two off days. Your off days can consist of active recovery, such as going for a walk, hiking, foam rolling, or just chilling on the couch catching up on the latest episode of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. By the way, I really love that show. You can choose a weekly schedule that works best for you, and you don't need to have a strict Monday to Friday schedule. Here are a couple examples that you can use. Um, so my first example, Monday, strength workout, Tuesday, off day, Wednesday, strength workout two, Thursday, mobility workout one, Friday, strength workout three, Saturday is an off day, Sunday is mobility workout two. Like there's so many different ways to do it. You just need to fit in your five days. Now, program guidelines. You'll notice that each workout has some guidelines. For example, Phase one, workout A, level three, looks like this. And then I show um, an example of how the workout looks with um, still images of the tutorial and the demonstration of um, each exercise. Now, the other thing to note is that the red um, text is um, a direct link to the exercise itself. So the other thing to note is each set has a range that either looks like two to three sets or two to four sets and rep, uh, rep ranges as well as a deadlift uh, percentage. To follow these guidelines correctly, here's what I want you to do. Each phase in this program is four weeks in length. Each week, I want you to increase your volume, meaning either weight, rep, uh, weight repetitions, or sets. Think of the first week of each phase as an introduction or orientation. You don't want to go into hashtag beast mode right off the bat. You want to slowly incorporate yourself and learn the movements and not turn yourself into a delayed onset soreness mess. 
I suggest the first week of every phase you perform minimal amount of sets prescribed as well as the amount of repetitions. In the first week, if the first week feels really easy, then the program did its job. The program is designed to prepare your body for the hard manual labor ahead. As the weeks progress, as I mentioned earlier, increase your sets, reps, or weight. For example, week one, do two sets of each exercise with minimal reps. Week two, do two to three, maybe do three sets, right? Or add more weight or add more reps to your two sets. Week three, go three to four sets of each exercise with more reps and more weight. Week four, maximum amount of sets with more repetitions and more weight. Here are some more guidelines to consider. Let's say you're doing the dumbbell bench press in workout A, phase one, in the level three program, and as you get to the eighth repetition, it feels effortless. Feel free to go to the maximum prescribed repetitions. This occurrence is where you can individualize this program to you. Don't feel confined as I give rangers and recommendations, so you can be the driver of the vehicle and control your own destiny. Sounds really epic, doesn't it? Deadlift and back squat percentages also pop up in this program. I'd assume that if you're doing level three uh, program or even level two, you'd have some experience in the gym and might know your one repetition maximum for both of these lifts. If not, I recommend attempting your one rep uh, max to go off your last heaviest attempt for both of these lifts and find one of those one rep uh, max calculators online. If you've never tried your one rep max and you're brand new to exercise, I suggest discovering a challenging weight in your first phase. By slowly playing, did that feel heavy? Once you find a challenging weight where the last two reps felt difficult and you showcase angelic form, write down your weights. Then once it's completed, using your weights uh, information, input them into an online one rep max calculator. It's not perfect, but it's somewhere to start. Here's another troubleshooting tip. What if, what should you do if for whatever reason you had a horrible sleep because you couldn't stop thinking about work or ended up binge watching an entire new season of your favorite Netflix show. Or maybe you decide to go out with your friends and end up drinking until 2 a.m. and you had to wake up for work the next day at 6 a.m. and then had absolutely no energy to lift heavy shit. Adjust your workout. Let's say you feel low on energy, you're falling asleep at work, your body's hurting, and all you want to do is curl up into a burrito at home and sleep until the week is over. Simply go to the gym, foam roll, warm up, and aim to finish one set only of everything. If by the time you finish one set and you feel like you can do another, go ahead. This situation is perfect to learn how to listen to your body. You won't ever have perfect days to work out. When these things happen, listen to what your body's telling you and don't push yourself to the limit as you will do more harm than good. Now, let's get started, shall we? Find your level of program below and use the workout sheets that you can print out and let's build your ironclad body. Now, also to keep in mind, the mobility workouts can be found after all three levels of strength workouts as the mobility workouts can be performed at any fitness uh, ability. So if you keep scrolling down through the book, you will find all the mobility workouts. All right, so the next section is the mobility workouts. Force is the language of cells. Whether those forces are applied by external means by way of soft tissue therapy application or internal means by way of active muscle contraction 
and movement. The cells ultimately don't know the difference. They simply receive communications and in brackets forces from their environment and then adapt to those messages accordingly. This is a quote from Dr. Andrew Spina. For years, I've always heard how mobility work was going to fix all my clients' movement uh, restrictions. Then, when their mobility improved, you work on stability. And by doing so, you'd be able to levitate and fly around on a magical unicorn, shooting rainbows out of your butt from being so excited that the client was out of pain and could move better. After a year or two training clients who had shoulder, hip, ankle, thoracic spine, and primarily every joint being limited, I was utilizing every mobility corrective out there. I'd spend hours creating strategies and programs to get my clients moving better who had dysfunctional movement patterns. After the initial 6-12 to 12 month mark doing correctives and stability work on clients showed improvement in their movement quality and even pain. The only issue was I ran into a plateau roadblock and then the progress stopped. I remember asking myself, why did it stop? Why can't this guy get his arms overhead? I went on a quest to figure out uh, this, as I want all my clients to have better movement quality, prevent achy joints, pain, and be better set up for specific exercises like the barbell deadlift. I started working with and shadowing a local physio to see if he could shed some light on the issue. After a couple of months of watching his treatment modalities and picking his brain, I got to a conclusion of maybe corrective exercise could only get you so far and you need a physiotherapist or chiro to unlock your tight spots. The other thing I realized that is important to me specifically is the gray area between a client being injured and seeing a manual therapist for rehab, then figuring out when they are allowed to come back to training with the trainer. You can always train around an injury, but I've had many physios and chiros tell my clients in the past they should stop training and continue rehab with them instead. That's stupid. Proper training is rehab. Proper rehab is training. This concept was created by Dr. Charlie Weingroff, who coined the phrase, training equals rehab, rehab equals training. I think about this phrase a lot because it makes total sense. I'm not saying coaches are therapists in any way, but a solid training program designed for an individual can help rehab them out of pain. Similar to this very program you're reading right now. Wasn't that a great plug? <laughs> the example I use a lot is I have a new client that comes in, we go over their history, and they all tend to say, my hips hurt, my shoulder sometimes hurt, and my lower back has been giving me some issues lately. I write down their concerns and have it in the back of my head. After about three months of consistent training, I follow up with my client and ask, how's your hip, shoulder, and low back doing? Client goes, uh, they... Haven't really bugged me in a while, so haven't thought of it recently. If you give the right exercise that makes people's bodies happy, all those aches and pains go away. But again, I hit a roadblock. I stopped seeing people getting better. I thought going to a manual therapist could help, and it did for a while, but again, there was a ceiling effect to improvement. Now, before you get all angry at me that I'm against manual therapy, I'm not. I think it's great for getting out of pain and moving better, but I want the better movement to stay. I want my client to own it and when it's asked for. When the manual therapist gives more range of motion passively to a patient, that range might disappear the next day or day after. How do you prevent this and own it? This thought process is where the FRC principles bridge the gap and are the foundation 
of this program to make you resilient. I like using the principles from the FRC as it's a system that's layered and makes sense to me to improve mobility in the joints and rehab someone from injury. It all starts from the foundation within us, our muscle cells. For us to move our hip into uh, flexion, our muscle cells communicate to produce the movement. Without getting into the nitty-gritty science, muscle cells communicate in many different ways, but for the sakes of this section, all you need to worry about is force. Just like earlier, remember that force is the language of the cells, and if we want to improve our movement quality and range of motion, we need to use force to communicate to our cells as well as our nervous system to give us what it's asked of them. Before we get into it, it's essential for me to share these two passages from the FRC to give you an idea what the principles and methods from the FRC can do. So here's a quote. Mobility, defined as an extent of controllable flexibility across articulations, which is flexibility plus strength, refers to the amount of usable motion that one possesses. Active ranges of motion are those ranges that are attainable through the application of active internal, in brackets, muscular force stimulated by the nervous system activity. It is these active ranges that can bestow a aforementioned benefits of injury prevention, improved performance, athletic and non-athletic, and lasting articular health. Being able to put your leg over your head passively isn't that impressive compared to being able to do it actively. Majority of people have motor control uh, gaps between active and passive mobility, and using things like cars, pails and rails, hovers, etc. can help close that gap and give full control over your body to build you into a strong ironclad warship. Now, next section is CARS, a.k.a. Controlled Articular Joint Rotation. The first step to building you up is using CARS to improve joint health, mobility, joint strength, and even performance. How I explain CARS to my clients is drawing perfect circles with our joints. Think of grabbing a pen, aka your joint, then drawing a circle on a piece of paper. It should be a beautiful round circle, but for many of us, that circle will look like chicken scratch when we first start. As you begin your journey with CARS, I want you to remember something significant. Do not push through pain or pinching. Many of us might have had an old injury, fell on our hip, had an ACL surgery, whatever it may be, so some of our joints won't be so happy when you're trying to put it back to where they should go. This phenomenon of your body stopping you from getting the range of motion you should have is something I like to call neural guarding. When you've gone through an injury or pain in a joint, your body wants to protect you even if that means to modify your movement patterns to prevent pain. This process will create asymmetries and cause more problems down the road, which is why we need to claim our range of motion back from our nervous system, which brings me to my next point. Our nervous system is what I like to call the gatekeeper slash protector of our bodies. For example, you experience a nasty fall. You end up landing on your shoulder and now your shoulder is injured. After a few days, your shoulder starts to feel better and you go on with your life. But some daily activities such as lifting your arm to grab a glass from your cupboard, out of nowhere, you get a sharp shooting pain at the site of injury. This scenario happens because your nervous system is built to protect you. It sent a signal for you to experience pain to keep your shoulder within safe limits. The brain and nervous system remembers painful patterns. Remember, 
Painful movement equals restricted movement. When you start using cars, the moment you get a little essence of pain, don't go through it, but around. Your perfect circle might start looking like a depressing, deflated balloon on your birthday, but at least you're working your joint through a safe and pain-free range of motion. When performing cars, I want you to think of three cycles. One, go through the range of motion relaxed. Two, creating tension like a front plank slash core exercise at 50% max effort. Three, then finally creating full tension at 90% of max effort. We will use our hands and other equipment to create this tension, and it will be explained for each exercise as we get into the mobility workouts. The concept of creating tension is to communicate with our cells and nervous system. When we consistently communicate in this fashion, we are asking our bodies to give us more range, and after multiple requests, our nervous system will finally give in, like a parent getting manipulated by their child, wanting ice cream, and will say, okay, fine, here. This scenario is the first push towards more mobility and full control of our bodies. Pails and rails. The second layer is getting to something called pails and rails, which stands for progressive and regressive angular isometric loading. There are isometric contraction efforts used to communicate with both connective tissue in our neurological system. By using isometrics, you can get to speak with your nervous system directly saying, hey, would it be cool if I get another 10 degrees of motion this way in my hip? Then your nervous system goes, um, sure, I guess, that's okay. After a while, you get to own that range of motion and soon you'll notice your flexibility improve and voila, you can move more efficiently and look awesome while doing it. This technique is similar to what a manual therapist does for patients, but the only fundamental difference is they're doing this passively to you. By doing pails and rails contractions actively, you'll be able to keep the newly acquired range for longer. Then, with continued practice with pails and rails, you'll notice your flexibility and mobility, both passively and actively, will improve. You'll notice that the majority of the body parts chosen chosen are hips and shoulders. Living in a world where we sit and stare at a screen for 90% of the day, it is imperative that we focus on the primary players first before we get into the nitty gritty. Now here's a great look of a before and after of my wrist extension by using the principles of cars and pails and rails consistently for seven weeks. Now. Um, this picture shows a before and after of wrist extension, and when I was taking the course, I was really surprised that um, I had limited extension in my left wrist, and I never really noticed that. And you know, after several seven weeks practicing every single day, I actually gained some more range of motion, and now it's um, um, the same as my good wrist. Now, passive and active range holds and liftoffs. The third layer I like to use to challenge a newly acquired range are liftoffs and passive range holds. For example, say your external rotation of your hip was getting better, we try putting you in your passive range of motion in a stretch, and then you should be able to hold that range actively. You might notice one side worse than the other, and that's okay. That means we need to spend a little bit more time on that one side. The primary focus of passive and active range holds and lifts liftoffs are to improve strength and function in a long and short range by improving neural drive capacity. Cramping. Yeah, it does happen, and when it does, it sucks. You'll find certain pails and rails exercises can cause cramping in certain spots in your body. What happens is your brain sends a signal to the limb 
you're trying to con contract, and if your muscle that you're trying to use has never contracted that way before, becomes quickly confused and sends a signal back to the brain, like, what the fuck do you want me to do? Then receives no feedback or instruction and goes, well, I'm going to cramp and see if that's what you want me to do. You embarrassingly fall over, grabbing onto your muscle that betrayed you, and you look up towards the skies and scream out, why? Why me? Just cool it, relax, it'll pass, ease up on the contraction for next time and you'll eventually, your muscle will understand what you're asking for. The mobility workouts, phase one of becoming a ninja-like mobility warrior. How the mobility workouts work. You'll notice that the mobility workouts are eight weeks in length and it's on purpose. I found when I started implementing the principles of FRC to clients, there was a learning curve to the movements and building up enough body awareness to figure out how to properly ramp up a pails and rails contraction. Eight weeks seems to be enough time for your body and nervous system to work out the kinks and fully benefit from the exercises. Begin each mobility workout with soft tissue work, starting with the ball, then transitioning to the foam roller, and follow the order described below. Have a timer ready to close by to use, or use your phone and make sure throughout each car's exercise, and especially during the pails and rails exercise, you focus on breathing deeply through your diaphragm. All right, so this comes to the end of the book. A lot of the rest of the text in this book is exercise descriptions and the workouts themselves. So a couple things to note is, you know, if you start at level one of the program and you finish four months, each um, workout is four months long. So say you did level one and you followed it religiously for four months, what I would do is do level two next. Do that for four months, and then after, hopefully your movement improved, do level three. And the same thing goes for level two. You can do the level two program and then do level three. If you're someone who is a level three um, person and you're doing it, um, what you can do is go back to the first month and you can change reps and sets like you know for example um that first section of workout a it says you know two to four sets you can easily do five to six sets and then change the rep scheme to four to six reps for every single thing and focus on a little bit more strength remember i want you to be in control of your workouts and your uh, program as much as possible and again if you have any questions I am happy to answer them um, in the ebook the last page is my personal email my actual gmail account so by all means email me I know I'm gonna get a huge influx so if you don't hear me hear back from me right away give me a couple days and I will email email you back and help you get through anything you need and if you are dealing with an injury and you can't find a good therapist let me know what area you're in and I will find you a good therapist because I have quite a bit of a network of professionals in my circle that will most likely know someone in your area so I want to thank you so 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 much for purchasing my book this is honestly such a surreal thing and it's been such a grind to get this thing together and finished thank you thank you thank you thank you so much 
You're amazing. You're going to crush it. I love you. God, thank you.